2: Hello and welcome to another segment of Down the Pub. There's a lot of grumpy historians in the Mary Rose tonight because we spent the last 48 hours being told that we're fucking idiots and that all those years we have spent reading books and learning stuff is pointless because we could have just looked it up on Wikipedia or found a gif to explain it. Anyone want to have a bit of a rant, Kate? Uh,
3: I will... <laughs> Wait, which Kate? We all need to rant.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go around. Everyone will get their <laughs> rant. Don't worry. Kate Jameson first.
3: Oh, no. Okay. I mean, I don't know where to start. I could rant forever about bringing Nelson's column down or not. As I will end
2: them. I will run them over (laughs) in my Peugeot 107. Every single one of them. I will just continually (laughs) ram the crowd until they leave it alone.
3: I mean, someone stole some (laughs) cannons from Axminster. Um, earlier today or last night. I mean, I'd like to say it was me and that I was going to mount them on the base of Nelson's Column, but it wasn't, unfortunately. <laughs> oh.
2: what's, what's going on? How stands it with the museum curator who thought she'd go online and do the how-to guide of setting fire to <laughs> mill statue? How
3: to destroy a statue. Yeah,
2: yeah I think <laughs> her account is now private.
3: I unfollowed her because I didn't really want her in my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> but her account's now private i've not seen anything else i think she uh, hid after the daily mail picked
2: up on her oh did they brilliant that's what you want is the daily mail ringing you Lockie, what about you you're doing a phd just give up mate get it off wikipedia
4: yeah i'm gonna get a (laughs) job afterwards am i no Um, no i mean to be honest like the colston thing has been going on forever like when i studied at bristol years ago um this was a thing Back then, so I can't believe it has taken like best part of twenty years to to hold the bastard down. Quite frankly, and he was—he's was just a slave scumbag. So yeah, yeah.
2: I just—I don't really get now though the whole heat up <coughs> on the voices website telling people where to go next. I'm just really. Have we got? So I've I've tweeted Greyfriars Bobby this morning. Take that cat hating little bastard down <laughs> for a start. Paddington Bear can fuck off as well. He's illegal. I got one. <laughs> go on
5: that uh, that piper on the that statue of the piper on the longevel piper's yeah oh
2: Neil delfer wood that's fucking hideous let's yeah, get that one, down.
5: yeah the one whose fingers <laughs> are longer than his calf that yeah
2: one. that's kind <laughs> of creepy where are
4: his eyes I don't, yeah just mm.
2: yeah if you haven't seen this, ladies and gentlemen, there is a statue at Longevel um in what constitutes the town center, which is basically a crossroads but um it's the most hideous statue you've ever seen in your life unless you drive up to posiers and see the animal monument oh maybe we could flatten that
6: (laughs) i'm just a little bit concerned about all the suggestions that people want to pull down clive
2: oh yeah (laughs) i don't think they mean you
6: oh phew
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just like keep your head down
7: sense really there's so much criteria you can use to decide whether you keep a statue up or stick it in a museum or whether it deserves to be Removed and it's like we people just How break the law the and
2: vandalise things? How about yeah. we have an adult conversation about it? And if we don't want to have them to be revered anymore, they go in a museum and we tell people why.
8: This would rely on a large majority of the population behaving like adults, which they have proven they're unable to do.
2: Yeah, this is true. And we will probably behave, we are unable to do. Uh, be, <laughs> see, I can't even speak. <laughs> we will probably demonstrate that we are unable to behave like adults today as well because we are going to debate the greatest journey in history. Uh, i banned existential journeys of self-discovery and all that boring shit because that's no fun um, <laughs> and a banned space because it just win because it's awesome. Johnny isn't here today so Holmes' man crush is in the house. Pete Brown, beer historian, is going to be his fellow guest judge. You're right Pete?
9: I'm all right thanks yeah we can do this definitely.
2: Yeah, you were the first judge who's not actually legally qualified so far down the pub, but no pressure.
9: I'm not. I'm a, I'm a, my my metier is the pub, so history, like everything else, I just make it up as I go along, basically. I mean, to well, that be seems fair, to work
2: what... on Twitter. Yeah. yeah.
5: <laughs> to be fair, those of us with legal qualifications have been doing similar since that start of this hmm. started, to be honest.
2: Excellent. That's all right then. And we have a newcomer's day, Kit. Hey. Hello. Kit Chapman, science and philosophy historian. So yes. they're relying on you to raise the tone. Oh, right? please
10: don't. Please don't rely on me for that Oh,
2: Excellent, so Kit came along the other day When we uh, started At precisely the right moment in history To decide to do a Greatest Britain poll Two days before everyone started ripping statues down I'm going to carry on, fuck it, let's see where the vote goes But Kit came in and nominated Michael Faraday because we forgot So he's now the person I'm going to ring about science Every time my head gets (laughs) stuck. Little does he know It's going to be the worst thing he ever did So yeah, we're going to do The Greatest Journey in history, um, it has to be an A to B, but beyond that, you can use your imagination. Okay, we'll do Kate because Kate's brain, uh, Kate Jameson's brain's about to explode anyway. So yeah. she <laughs> may just fall asleep at her desk while we're on air. Uh, no, I'm all
3: right. I had, I had a nap. So. <laughs>
2: You did your 15 minute power nap, and the rum yeah, the has woken bit. you up again. Uh, we've, yeah. been, we've been very busy founding Nelson's bodyguard on Twitter today and threatening to get people that touch. I still I love that suggestion that um, Phil came forward with about greasing Nelson's columns so we could just watch them all trying to climb it and falling off. I would pay to see that, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like the new Olympics, as the Olympics are canceled. As someone who has climbed up on the first level of it before, yeah, it's not easy. It's like um, taller than I am. We had to stand on it for the
3: Trafalgar 200 anniversary, and I have my drill cadet drill boots, which have like metal plates on. Um, and if you move slightly, because it's actually on a very, very
2: slight incline, you almost stacked it and fell off. And thankfully I didn't, but it was very close. <laughs> oh, I climbed it when England won the Rugby World Cup and some <laughs> shit-faced guy next to me fell off and landed face first on the ground. There's a lot of blood. Apparently it looked worse than it was, but it didn't look good, if I'm honest. But anyway, <clears> whose journey have you gone for? Uh, so
3: I'm going with Robert Falcon Scott, Scott of the Antarctic, as a lot of people know him. Boom. So, um, I, I mean, where do you want me to start? Do you want me to talk about him or just his
2: expedition? Uh,
3: or? I think or, we know who he is. Let's go for
2: his expedition.
3: Yeah, okay. So, obviously, um,
2: Robert Falcon Scott had joined the Navy. Uh,
3: let's do a quick intro. He worked his way up and became a lieutenant and was specialising in torpedoes. So, I had to get my gunnery in there somehow. Always. Um, and in 1894, he suddenly became responsible for his mum and his unmarried sisters, um, financially. So he was looking for a promotion as quick as possible uh, and then came across this expedition that was offered by the Royal Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Society, um, which meant a promotion and it also meant going to Antarctica, which I imagine was was pretty cool. Um, He didn't actually have any exploration experience at all, um, especially not polar travel. Um, Anyway, he became commander, went off on the National Antarctic Expedition in 1900, Um, on his ship, the Discovery. So those that have um, heard of the new RRS Discovery um, will have heard of it. I think you can visit it, actually. I might be wrong. I haven't, but I think you can visit it. Um, Anyway, it was specially built for the expedition, and they left the next year. They discovered... um, They entered the Sound and discovered where they were joining on Ross Island. And basically, they were trying to plan whether this range of mountains in the distance was actually a chain of islands or whether it was the edge of antarctica so they traveled across they'd never used dogs before it was all a bit of a disaster actually um and then they eventually unfortunately had to turn around about 82 degrees south but he was joined with um joined by on the expedition a guy called edward wilson who was a doctor and ernest shackleton who of course became famous in his own right as an antarctic explorer um They had no experience in this terrain. It was all a bit chaotic, but they turned around and they went back. Um, He returned home and everyone thought he'd done a great job anyway. They'd covered a load of new research in geology, zoology, meteorology, and they'd done some work on the sort of magnetism of the poles, I guess, Um, sort of successfully. Um, He then went back to the Royal Navy as a captain, and had kind of got to the point where he wanted to go back, basically. So he learnt that Shackleton, his previous previous teammate, had decided that he was gonna go off on a um, expedition to reach the South Pole. Um, and now they're obviously competitors. So Shackleton left in 1907 on the Nimrod um, and ran for the pole the next year. Um, and yeah, Scott basically wanted to still be the, fam- the first person to get there. So he spent, next year raising all of this money um and eventually he sailed off on the terra nova um but yeah so he went back to the south pole um and then this time he was against a guy called amundsen a norwegian a norwegian chap um but yeah he he headed off to antarctica more for scientific purposes i guess rather than the publicity stunt of of reaching it first but I like him um obviously it doesn't
2: also he looks really cool like I don't know if you've seen pictures of him like they look like almost like a rugged manly boy band (laughs) (laughs) and also one one thing I forgot to add is I think they they were the first people to discover
3: a colony of emperor penguins which isn't you know I think it's cool because I like penguins but
2: it's pretty cool. If you've never seen one before and one of those walks around the corner, it's nearly as tall as you are. Well, me and you, maybe not some of the others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, any questions on Scott of the Antarctic?
5: There, there, there's one obvious one that really jumps out. And if, if this is supposed to be the greatest journey, he was sort of beaten by another bloke doing the same journey roughly at the same time. So can't really supersede that one, can it? Such a
2: killjoy. <laughs>
3: Well, maybe, but I think because it was one of the first expeditions, that's kind of why, why I chose it. Um, And also whilst, you know, he was beaten um, and then Shackleton went back to to do it again. It's just a really cool, really, really cool expedition. If you read about it, like I think they were broken in like se- it took them seven weeks to get through something like 18 miles of ice which is mad um and in terms of the logistical side of it it was just just mad really
2: you have to take what? literally every single thing with you don't mm. you
5: well also they were they, were, they weren't they were that far away in the end were they from um no not at
2: all river. not
3: at all i think they they got further south than anyone had previously managed to anyway
5: I mean, it's got it's got it's got all the marks of like a brilliant British story, like heroic. I mean, ultimate sacrifice, heroic failure. I mean, and most, yes. of us, most of us have had to change jobs in our careers to get promotion, but this is quite an extreme version of doing that.
3: Yeah, like I'm going to go off to uh, to Antarctica and use yeah. huskies, and I've never done any of this, and I've never walked across ice, but it's fine. We'll we'll do it. We're British. I mean,
5: maybe maybe somebody could bear that in mind for the next appraisal.
2: You know, it's an argument. <laughs> Hey, any questions?
9: Mine was going to be very similar, uh, actually, which is, um, I, I mean, I, my, my knowledge of this mainly extends to the, the, the film with John Mills in it. And, and it was, when I saw that as a kid, it was one of my first uh, sort of experiences <clears throat> of, of the noble art of British failure. Um, yeah. and, and how we, we fail better than any other country in the entire world. Kate, would you would you think of the expedition as a failure or would you say it was ultimately a success by its own terms or by your terms?
3: It depends how you view as a failure. I'm very much of the opinion that if you've achieved something, then it's not a failure. Um, and like we said, they certainly got further than anyone else had. And it, whilst it was an incredibly steep learning curve... Um, they learnt enough that they then went back and tried again and that to I me mean, is more important I think than than just giving up so I mean it's a, it's a strange
5: strange definition of success if you didn't achieve what you set out to do and everybody died uh, Have you heard not about the of the
3: not song? The <laughs> 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 No, not There was only 20,000
5: deaths there
3: but... No they didn't die in the, the first expedition Oh. Um, yeah they, i think they only missed it by something like 97, 97 miles which actually in terms of antarctica isn't a huge huge distance
2: because antarctica is absolutely immense isn't it absolutely yeah
9: when you said he had, he had no exploration experience and no experience in the terrain was mm-hmm. that kind of typical of explorers at that time or was he just kind of this amazing amateur compared to other people <sighs>
3: I mean, I think he was quite, I think, I don't know why he got picked because he didn't have the experience. I think um, Amundsen, the Norwegian guy, certainly had a lot of like mountaineering type experience, I believe. Um, Then he grew up in a country like that, whereas Scott was born. Your experience probably was something in the Navy and Dartmoor, if if he was lucky. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, he had connections, didn't he? Yeah, he did, absolutely. Yeah. Uh let's go to let's have a guy next. Uh let's do Loki's in the house. Hey Loki. Hello. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. Apart How are from you obviously being told by morons on Twitter that you've wasted your whole life. Yeah,
4: <laughs> standard. Standard. I wasted quite a lot of it. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to do something useful now. Um I mean like literally right now this is probably the most useful thing that I'm doing. <laughs>
2: Happy birthday uh, for last week.
4: Yeah, that was really boozy. Yeah, it um,
2: looked like it in the pictures.
4: Yeah, you we set
2: up a bar in your garden, it's not going to end well, is it?
4: We set up a bar in the garden. We played a croquet tournament, but we'd got like an inflatable pool that I suddenly decided was a good idea to get out, and so we did, um and started <coughs> filling it up. This thing holds about five thousand litres. Um so it didn't fill up in time. So we would Smashed and then this sort of half build up little paddling pool. In Perfect. fairness,
2: any smaller and you wouldn't get in it.
4: <clears throat> exactly. Well, I can, I could I could jump into this thing and it doesn't fall over.
2: Oh well. <laughs> Although I dread to think what your water bill is going to look like.
4: No, that's true.
2: Anyway, let's let's uh, get back to greatest journeys.
4: Yeah. Um, all right. Sod plucky failure. I'm going for success. Um, we're doing uh, what's the journey? A to B It's uh, Plymouth to Plymouth uh, via Plymouth and some other places as well.
2: Oh, this is someone who they've got their eye on this <clears> his <throat> statue, haven't they? Well,
4: yeah, is it controversial to talk about...
2: Great... No, fuck it.
4: Yeah, whatever. I mean, it's Drake. It's Drake, of course it's Drake. It's the, mm-hmm. the first Englishman to lead a, an expedition circumnavigating the globe, and what a hell of a thing. Um, especially when... It goes wrong from oh. the word go, and then sort of continues to go wrong, and then they sort of have a purple patch where it's tremendous violence and epic success, and then it's just get home before everyone dies. Uh, I think so, Sounds brilliant. Um, well, no, yeah, pretty good. So they can <laughs> like a night out, basically,
2: just stretched <laughs> out.
1: <laughs> um,
4: yeah, I mean, they set sail from Plymouth on the fifteenth of November, fifteen seventy-seven. Um, they'd had the brief. Well, what was the brief? What was going on? I mean, uh, Elizabeth was on the throne, and things were going all right, I suppose. I mean, the the Spanish were both the headache and the cash cow, uh, I think. Um, There was Protestant rebellion in the Netherlands that Elizabeth was trying to fund, although she sort of had enough of them. Um, Philip had had his problems not being able to pay his soldiers in the Netherlands. So we thought, right, well, let's, let's hit him where it hurts some more in the wallet. And where can we do that best? Well, over sort of America way, and where are they not expecting us to pop up over the other side of America and the Pacific. So Drake's dispatched off. Uh, he's got a little team with him, of course. He's got, uh, what was it, five ships he sets off with them initially? Something like that. Um, his friend Thomas Doughty and his brother Thomas. Everyone's called Thomas. At this time it seems he's also uh, on the expedition and off they go and immediately the weather's crap and so they don't get past Cornwall and then they have to put into dock and they don't go anywhere for a month and they've got to go back to Plymouth to, to do some repairs so it's December a month later they actually get going and what, what are the things you're desperately looking for on what is going to be a tough tough voyage some decent weather, all right, no, that's gone. Uh, unified leadership, clear command and good examples to the rest of the men. So, on the way down through the Atlantic, um, Thomas Doughty, uh, Drake's friend, catches Drake's brother, Thomas, Robin. all right? So, he's been stealing, and I, I, I can imagine the conversation going, something like, Doughty confronting Drake and saying, I caught your brother stealing, what are we going to do about it? Drake saying, oh, for God's sake, just leave it to me i 'll right, sort it out, no, not good enough, says Doughty. We need to make an example because stealing can 't be tolerated he 's my brother i 'll sort it, not good enough, etc. Et so this bounces back and forth, and eventually doughty gets bumped back down to the commander's little supply ship, which is a bit of a smack in the face. Then he starts griping um, about Drake Francis, um, which is not what you want really anyway it gets they get down to. South America and Drake really has had enough of Doughty, so he puts him on trial for treason and has him beheaded all right so, <laughs> it 's a poor start all right it 's an ordinary start anyway um, <clears throat> they 're do, basically doing two winters at once because they set off in December and now they 're down in the southern hemisphere, so they 're just in time for another winter, so they decide right we 're not going to go around Cape Horn or, or try and go through uh, the straits to get through just yet, so they have a little uh, time uh having fun down around Patagonia in which I believe they become the first Europeans to kill the native South Patagonians which is quite a quite a, a stat. For I you. Wish that's
2: going to fuck the statue right up. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. Can you imagine the the South Patagonian contingent of of London is going to be yeah. on the warpath. All <laughs> two of them. Um, <laughs> They've lost ships by they've lost a load of crew as well. The attrition rate on the crew already has been heavy, um, and so they're only only actually make it round with one ship uh, round into the Pacific, which they eventually do. By um, you know, they've been been on the on on the journey for the better part of a year by the time they actually make the pacific and then is that's when they start having fun because they sail north um along the pacific coast of south america and they are raiding and pillaging ports and getting some good stuff there's uh they, they get into valparaiso in chile uh, and they seize a a ship full of wine, amazing, massive booze up. I can imagine morale being sky high at that point. And then they hit a few big treasure ships. I'm not expecting English ships to pop up here. What, what's going on? Um, so they find one uh, Spanish ship uh, just outside Lima uh, and nick uh, 25,000 pesos in gold uh, off of them. But they hear about what seems to be the mother load, um, uh, the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, which they call the Cacafuego, which is is headed off towards um, uh, the Philippines, and so they set off after it, catch up with it, and that is monumental when they do. And they catch it by surprise, because they're not expecting English ships to be there, something like 36 kilos of gold, but 26,000 kilos of silver they have off it. Um, So stunning sums of cash uh, that they're stealing. I learned about this at school as a voyage of exploration and discovery all right massive massive theft and piracy at all times but really successful uh, for that the bit of discovery that they do get into is when they uh, go further up uh, the pacific coast because essentially they you know they've, they've taken a bit of a beating at this time they want a bit of time to put their ships back together oh ship, sorry one ship back together um and so they uh, mooch up to oregon um, well, what's now Oregon, and then and then back down to California for a bit of refitting, uh, eventually do and then set off, make a few friends on the way back, also fight some Portuguese, uh, and then it's off round Africa to uh, to get home before everyone snuffs it. Uh, it's
2: like the league? most epic piss up, <laughs> like jolly, bitey
4: ever. piss up, yeah, yeah. Um, amazing. Um, so there you go.
2: I remember
3: reading somewhere as well that Doughty. <laughs> Got accused of witchcraft or something. Yeah, that, <laughs> like
1: that,
3: mad.
4: Because his his little ship that he'd been put in command of, uh, the Swan, essentially wanders off in a, in a storm and he and disappears. Which um, Drake, I don't know whether he believed it was witchcraft or was just a, a stick to beat him with. But um, yeah, that was that was on the on the list as well.
2: <laughs> John says I liked his song Hotline Bling as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, any questions about Drake?
9: Um, like you, I, I read learned about him in school as a total, total hero. Like, you know, with the foundation blocks of the British Empire, someone we should all uh, aspire to be like. And then went to Madrid a few years ago and walked around museums and kept seeing all these uh, English translations of things referring to the pirate Francis Drake. And I thought that was a very uh, different. <laughs> Uh, perspective than the one I'd been brought up with is one man's pirate another man's hero
2: oh hell yes I mean anyone (laughs) who winds the Spanish up that much at that point in time surely deserves (laughs) some kind of credit
4: like they they were privateering too it's just they had more to lose because we were better at it Yeah, yeah that too
2: yeah, Drake was just better than them at nicking shit. They were nicking it all from the people in <laughs> South America. Yeah,
4: they probably thought they'd stolen it fair and
2: square. Yeah, he was just sensible enough to wait for them to <laughs> lag it all the way back to nearly Europe before he pinched it off of them.
9: I, I do love the logic of that. That is fantastic.
2: Yeah. and do a... all
9: that hard work and just wait there for them to come back.
2: I know, which to me just makes him a well, true British it was, genius. It wasn't
4: Drake's first trip to to that part of the world either. They they basically, off the... Off he'd done it in like um 1572 73 where he'd he'd gone over to patagonia not gone all the way around south america but um but stop stop there for a bit actually teamed up with some french buccaneers as well to um to basically land somewhere in panama because the spanish would be bringing gold up from like peru up the pacific side getting to panama transporting it across land and then putting it on ships to sail it across the atlantic well, that was the raiding opportunity while they were shipping the stuff across land, and so they did it a few times, and made a, a, not as much money as they did on this time, but but quite a bit, which is which is part of the reason Elizabeth sent sent him off again.
2: I can't, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, I love him just because he's a total bastard. <laughs> 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 and that is it's a pretty awesome statue later on I'm going to post the Plymouth statue it's got a picture of the sun setting behind it dramatically last year that's another one it's slightly further Kate you take care of Drake and if yeah, they go right. for the I column to, uh, I can I get there in 20 minutes in Plymouth, yeah so. <laughs> yeah you can get there quicker than I can and I can get yeah. to Nelson so that's our deployment plan Feel. yeah <laughs> me and my 1.1 <laughs> litre engine Holmes any questions on Drake um,
5: yeah, I mean, a bit like Pete, I, I did it at school, but when I was quite little at school, so I know, you know, he sees the King of Spain's beard, I guess not literally, and all of that, and the bowls thing on Plymouth Hove, but do we think he actually went around the entire world? I mean, it's quite a great story anyway, but, you know, could they have exaggerated it slightly?
2: If he didn't, if he did, sorry, I'd love it even more. If it turns out he only went to Mallorca and back and somehow convinced the entire planet (laughs) that he circumnavigated the globe, that makes him even more of a pissed-up legend, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I'm
5: just thinking you might be, you know, you've got these ships full of treasure, you've been away a long time, you could just, you know, cut off a few hundred hundred nautical miles if you wish, (laughs) could
3: not you? It's like, like, No! (laughs) Like the 16th century Donald Crowhurst, that was his name, wasn't it? The guy that faked that yeah. he'd done the, uh, second, the Golden Globe race.
5: Yeah, I mean, but who's going to check, you know. No one can <laughs> verify it either way.
4: This is Blackadder theory, isn't it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, I love that episode. I love Blackadder II because he's just... Ri- that's the meanest Blackadder, isn't it? Yeah. And then
5: also, what was his... This is a, very much of a side issue, but what, Andy, what was his brother stealing?
4: I don't know. I can only assume it's it's food or booze um, at that stage because they haven't. It's before they've got hit sort of treasure, uh, as it were. Um, so I don't. They'd, they'd managed to nab a Portuguese ship along the way by that stage, I think. But um, yeah, you'd have
5: thought if you're like the captain's brother, you'd pretty much get what you want, wouldn't
2: you? It's like being Dominic Cummings, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, look how that's gone
2: Yeah (laughs) Oh, let's just piss everyone off tonight I don't care (laughs) Guys, any more questions about Drake? I like that one Not for me Um, me. Who should we go for next? You will not be I, I just do have to reference Andy Dorman, you're not a fan of Drake, are you? You've been sitting
11: there shaking your head blast. for the last 10 like, minutes. He is such an overrated nonce. I... <laughs> 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 like, but I'm not, not just because he massacred a load of Irish prisoners who surrendered. He's he just a complete tool. He spent most of his career claiming stuff that other admirals had done. for That he had done it. Got all the fame because he was the Queen's favourite and was then shipped off around the world for this piss-up and he was the second person to do it. Fuck Drake. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Lucky.
2: You feel feel better now, Andy.
11: Oh, so much better.
2: He was sitting there on mute, and you could see on the video that he was getting redder and redder the more of that story you told. And then he he started setting the chat on fire, and I just thought, mate, we've got to let him have his say. Oh, he's just. To to be
4: fair, I hope the the picture that I portrayed him wasn't of some learned patriot or or (laughs) not an example to to be
6: followed.
5: (laughs) I, I don't um, think you. I don't think you came across as a nonce in your description.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Alex, could I just point out that Andy li- lives in a city where they ripped down a statue of Nelson a few years ago.
11: We didn't R- rip it down. We right, it blew, blew, it off. blew it up. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and they did a great. They job went- and then the <laughs> army came and couldn't finish it off because they were incompetent. <laughs> 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 His, head,
3: His head is in a museum
2: apparently still.
11: So. Yeah, it is, and he looks really perturbed.
2: i'm not fucking surprised uh clive let's go to you next you're you're confident this week aren't you partly because johnny's not here
6: well that does help doesn't it
2: does help Uh, you yeah
6: (laughs) okay i want to talk about somebody who did did something not because he wanted to get great fame or fortune or get into the celebrity pages or anything like that he did it in order to survive Captain William Bly. You probably know him from having seen Charles Lawton, Trevor Howard, or Anthony Hopkins play him. But he was actually a very different character from that. Now, I'm not that bothered about the actual mutiny and the stuff on the bounty. It's what happened when he got off the bounty. That's the interesting bit, where he sailed over 4,000 miles in an open boat, which was pretty decent stuff. Let's put a bit of context. He went into the Navy at the age of seven, as you do. At the age of 16, he was an able-bodied seaman. A year later, a midshipman. He sailed from 1776 to 79 with Captain Cook on Cook's last voyage. And he was there when Cook was killed. He then came back and fought at the Battle of Dogger Bank, what greater battle that can there have been than the Battle of Dogger Bank? And then transferred to the Merchant Navy when the war with France ended. He then signed up to command the HMS auxiliary ship Bounty, and the idea was that they were going to sail down to the Southern Seas in the Pacific and pick up breadfruit plants and sail them to the West Indies to um, grow a staple crop to feed slaves which was a bit off, and if there had been any statues erected of Captain Bly, they'd probably be ripped down now. But he never brought back the breadfruit, at least not that time, because the the mutiny happened. The mutineers were actually a minority of the people on board the bounty, and instead of killing Bly, although they kept threatening to do so, they popped him into an open boat, with 18 other loyal seamen. There were four other loyal seamen, but they simply wouldn't fit. And this boat was so crammed full with people and a few provisions that the water was inches away from the gunnels, or whatever they call it. It was almost kind of filling up with water. And off they sailed. They were given four cutlasses, which must have been a great comfort to them, sailing around lots of unknown islands, food and water that was likely to last them a week included 28 gallons of water, a little bit of pork, um, £150 of bread, which very quickly went rot- rotten, and a small amount of rum and wine. So you would have been right, Alex.
2: Brilliant. Me and Kate are sorted. Yeah. the rest of you.
6: <laughs> they had a quadrant and a compass. No maps. Luckily, one sailor had a pocket watch. They didn't have any GPS, no satellite phones, not even a camera crew following them. And so they are out in this little boat. And just think about it at those times. He'd been on one of Cook's voyages out into the Pacific. There weren't many maps of the Pacific at that time. People really didn't know what was out there to a large extent. And he had to navigate using the sun and other things to a point where <laughs> there a were...
2: technical term. Yeah, those <laughs>
6: other <laughs> things, you know. You All mean a sextant. No, he did, a quadrant. He didn't have a sextant, okay. he had a quadrant. Don't ask me what the difference is. I'm sure someone can tell us. But <laughs> he managed to get from where he was, over 4,000 miles, to Timor, where there was a Dutch settlement.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: The first island they put into, which was fairly early on, They tried to buy some stuff off the natives using buttons and things like that. You can imagine them all cutting their buttons off their flies or whatever. The natives didn't take kindly to this and killed one of his men. And so they buggered off. They bypassed Fiji because they were a bit worried about the Fijians and sailed on and on and on till they got to Restoration Island, which wasn't then called Restoration Island. It was only called Restoration Island when they got there because they arrived (coughs) there on the anniversary of the Restoration. Then they island-hopped around Australia before getting to Timor. <clears throat> Between the 4th and 29th of May, the early part of that voyage, they, saw, they didn't touch foot on land, and they lived on 40 grams of bread a day. But apart from the guy who was killed at Tufur right early on, he didn't lose another man. It took 48 days to sail. They put up with storms, sharks, sun, seas, salt sores, starvation, they were constantly bailing out their boat, they were constantly soaked, they went through cold, they went through heat. The context, these were largely uncharted waters, very few people had sailed there before, and he managed to do it without maps, and he almost did it without any mutinies, though there was a little attempt at a mutiny at one stage, but he quickly put that down with one of the four cutlasses. <coughs> this-
2: was that the one involving Mel Gibson?
6: <laughs> no, no, no that, was the, that was earlier. That was the okay. original one. To put this really into context, Ant Middleton re- reproduced this voyage three years oh. ago. but He did it with nine men, not with 18. And he dropped one of those off because he got injured, and he chucked another one off the boat because he was an obnoxious little git. And... He took 60 days to do it. He had a doctor, he had a safety boat, he had life jackets, he had harnesses. Also, Middleton prepared by putting 10 kilograms in weight in preparation and still lost 21 kilograms. And he did it voluntarily and for money, whereas Bly did it because he had to do it for his own survival and the survival of his men. And therefore, it was an incredibly successful voyage. It was against all of the odds and it, it wasn't done for any vainglorious purposes, as many of these other trips have been done, or for riches. When they got to Timor, and then they bought a boat and sailed to England, quite a few of his men actually <clears throat> dropped dead because they were so weakened by the voyage, they picked up malaria and other fevers and died on the way home, which was a bit sad. He did go back a bit later, got his breadfruit, took it over to Puerto Rico and planted it there, but apparently the slaves wouldn't eat it, which has made the whole thing a bit worthless. But he then did jolly well at the Battle of Copenhagen, and Nelson was very pleased with him at that. He then went through another mutiny, though this one was where the whole fleet mutinied, and his ship did as well. He was appointed the fourth Governor General of New South Wales, until he was kicked out in another mutiny, he was court-martialed three times. He was acquitted each time, and he ended up as a rear admiral. But it's that voyage and that voyage alone that really, really sets him apart as the most amazing navigator of his time. And I think that survival feat surely qualifies as the greatest voyage, the greatest journey of all time.
2: Oh, it you. might just at that. Holmes, any questions?
6: Yeah, thanks, Clive. I, I've not heard the sort of second
5: part of that story. We're all familiar with the, the mutiny, but um, not necessarily the second part. And I know you mentioned he hasn't got a statue, but he has got a blue plaque on a house <laughs> near the Imperial War Museum. If anyone, he does. if anyone wants to go along and chuck shit at that mm-hmm. or anything. Um,
2: no one's going to have a fucking statue by this time tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first question is for my own curiosity,
6: but what, 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 what did seven-year-olds do in the Navy? I'm not sure. I just... It, I th- they just, I suppose they were cabin boys or whatever. It's the idea was you were bunged onto a boat at that early age and you learnt how to le- learn the art of seamanship. Powder so monkeys, that-
3: Kate, Jameson? Yeah. yeah, so they'd either join as cap-
2: normally captain servants or powder monkeys.
5: But and he- and what, do, what do powder monkeys do, presumably? Run like, the
2: gunpowder. Run the gunpowder up to the no monkeys. racist connotations to the <laughs> monkey part of it. They were all I, was just, I was just
5: asking for my own curiosity, really. Yeah. Um, I think, Clive, you answered everything else I was going to say. I was going oh. to ask about casualties, but you answered that. And I wanted to know what happened to him eventually. I mean, he didn't really get the hang of these mutinies,
6: did he? he no, he down. <laughs> he did not so far; as he got away with it each time, which is pretty good going. I mean, to survive three mutinies isn't bad. And to be acquitted by three different court-martials following the mutinies isn't bad either. And because he's still it ultimately-
2: sucks to be one of those ones that died on the way home on the main voyage, though, on the proper boat. Yeah,
6: that was... I mean, he got his guys all the way back to Timor, but malaria or whatever, they were just so weakened, so starved. That's that like that
2: film, Remember the Titans, where you watch it all the way through and then at mm-hmm. the end it says, and they lost.
6: But it's like... And um, also,
5: like, also thanks thanks to <laughs> Guy for clarifying that there was no GPS around and no camera proof. Right? Yeah. Because that's going to have a big influence on any decision we make <laughs> in the end.
6: But when, when Ant Middleton said it was, his reproduction of it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. And for God's sake, he's had to put up with Joey Essex on Celebrity Essex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> surely the hardest thing he had to do was that apology after about two day two into <laughs> lockdown
2: <laughs> what did he do I missed that one oh, he basically oh.
5: said that all the COVID stuff was nonsense and he's going to carry on doing exactly what he's always done Because he's a hugging, hard
2: hugging
3: people and shaking their hands and things
5: yeah it was a textbook apology Like PR had sat him down and said there's something you need to say, say <laughs> quite quickly here it is read this out
2: <laughs> hey any questions
9: yeah I've got two um like, do you think, um, I mean, th- there's no doubting that that was an extraordinary feat of, uh, of, of, of sailing. To what extent do you think, without knowing too much about sailing myself,
6: to what extent was that luck and to what extent was it skill? A huge amount of it was skill. One of the reasons he was picked by Cook to go on his last voyage was because of his navigational skills. And it's probably that there are very few other people alive at that time who could have done what he did then I mean yes there must have been luck in it they didn't get their boat swamped They, lots of other things didn't happen that could easily have killed them but his skill was the one thing that certainly kept them alive
2: Kate as a naval expert do you concur? Sorry I was completely in my own little bubble <laughs> uh,
6: <I'm quite laughs> used Luck or to skill for William me. Bly, luck
2: or skill
3: <laughs> To be honest I think I think both, we'll go with both but I think skill definitely comes into it, being able to manage everything that's going on in that in that situation.
2: There you go, Clive. Vindication.
6: <laughs> also, I mean, he kept the discipline of his eighteen or seventeen yep. years they were then guys, and that in a, that type of circumstance is pretty hard going, especially after they'd just been through a mutiny situation.
2: And um, we've been very boaty so far. That's a technical term that I learned on Wikipedia this morning when I became a naval expert in about five minutes in between having a coffee (laughs) and uh, feeding the cat. Uh, Let's go onto dry land for a bit now because I'm really excited to hear John Jordan's one. John and Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's creepily looking over his shoulder.
1: All right, we'll see if the audio is working here. I've got to uh, point out that I'm operating at an audible disadvantage because we, I'm connected to the pub over the transatlantic cable, which was last used by Roosevelt and Churchill in 1945. So uh, hopefully it's it's working now. Um, I am going to talk about two people whose statues, uh, three people, whose statues were voted uh, to be torn down back in November. So uh, the uh, City Council of Charlottesville, Virginia, got ahead of things when they voted to remove the statue of Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, along with Sacagawea, their uh, Native American uh, interpreter. Uh, I've always been a little bit shy about uh, knocking down statues ever since I tried to knock one down in Barcelona uh, years ago and found out it was actually just a person standing still month. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've had a soft spot in my heart for uh, people who are reserved statues, uh, leaving your dead. And these two, I think, really uh, really did a lot for the history of the Western. Mary Weatherly- Oh,
2: we're losing you again. We lost uh, you from uh, these two.
1: Oh, okay. It may be a connection issue. Is this any better? Yes. Okay. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were tapped by Thomas Jefferson, at the time the President of the United States and formerly the most ungrateful of the ungrateful colonists, <laughs> to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean from the eastern United States. They were sent out from, uh, in 1804 and for about two years they had what is probably a big dream job for anyone who lived in the year 2020. They get to go out, explore nature, and not have to put up with anyone's bullshit for two years. Uh, they, <laughs> did actually, <laughs> they did actually have to put up with some bullshit, and, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, they set out with 45 men and eventually had one woman in the uh, co- what they called the core of discovery. And uh, they had a 55 foot barge, so we're not entirely unboaty, which is a, another term you can learn on Wikipedia as a naval expert. <laughs> they eventually traveled 8,000 miles approximately, um, basically tracing from more or less St. Louis, Missouri, on the Mississippi River, up through the Missouri River, to uh, the Dakotas, uh, to Montana, Idaho, and eventually reaching the Pacific Ocean. Along the way, they met with approximately 50 American, Native American tribes. Uh, they met with, you know, that includes the Blackfoot, the Mandan, Sioux, Chinook, Shoshone groups like that, and uh, made contact with them. Uh, and by the time they were, they'd gotten to the Pacific, they had had a pretty good system for making contact with Native tribes. Uh, they brought a lot of bling that they could use for, uh, for trading, and uh, they began by bartering and then uh, to the extent they, could, uh, they had interpreters, they would uh, talk to the uh, natives, they would give them this, uh, a few gifts, uh, some coins that were made by, for the expedition by Washington, and then they would politely told them that America owned the land they were standing on. Um, but they apparently said it in a nice enough way because there were very few violent uh, encounters, uh, comparatively few, with the natives they met. Now, language was one problem they were going to encounter, uh, and they had a number of people, who were some of whom were picked because of their linguistic skills. Uh, at one parlay with uh, the Shoshone tribe, for instance, uh, the, it went like this. The communications went from the Shoshone chief, who would speak in Shoshone to Sacagawea, who would translate from Shoshone into Hidatsa, and, you, and tell her husband the story, the message. Uh, he was a Frenchman uh, named uh, Thibodeau Charbonneau. Uh, Charbonneau would translate the message into French and give it to Private Francois Labide, uh, Labide, I'm sorry. Um, and Labide would uh, translate it into English for William Clark. And then they would go back the same way they came. So sometimes uh, the communications were attenuated and you can imagine the uh, potential for uh, a problem that, uh, you know, could really sour relations. Uh, but they were able to make it back uh, by, the, by late 1806. So they'd been gone two and a half years. They encountered freezing temperatures over the uh, mountains of Montana and Idaho. Uh, they survived on uh, frozen or, or, or dried beef at one point and a little bit of cornmeal. So long that they, when they were rescued by friendly Indians, uh, they were given vegetables and nearly died from uh, from it. Uh, they had to fight their way through a war party of Blackfoot Indian warriors. Uh, they killed two of them. But remarkably, the only loss to their expedition was uh, one young man who died of appendicitis. I think it was Lewis got shot in the ass accidentally while hunting. But uh, otherwise, they they made it back rather unscathed. They uh, brought back a record of about 120 different animals that they encountered and identified, 200 botanical specimens, numbers of seeds, and things like that. But their real value was the maps that they gave to the United States government uh, and uh, that showed the different routes to get to the Pacific, uh, none of which were a water route. Uh, And then Thomas Jefferson made a speech to Congress not long afterward talking about the expedition that sort of popularized the idea of moving west and began in many ways the westward expansion of the United States uh, to where it is today. So that's my uh, pick for a a remarkable journey uh, made with a lot of skill, but also uh, one that had a lasting effect on what the United States looks like
2: um i really like this choice uh i've one question before the judges get involved and that is what is the deal with their statue why
1: it was uh it was kind of strange it was the uh well now charlottesville virginia uh has a uh, there there was it was a scene of of a racial disturbance uh, uh not that long ago uh so they're very sensitive it's also a college town it's the home to the university of virginia founded by thomas jefferson and uh they concluded the statue of, of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, the three of them, was offensive to indigenous peoples. It was a symbol of, um, uh, you know, many of the things that we are, do not like to think about over here. Um, and sometimes the uh, solution that uh, people jump to is not, well, think about what it represents, but is just tear it down so we don't have to think of it. Um, but that's, that's what happened uh, to the statue. I don't know if it was, if it was actually pulled down, but uh, Virginia has a number of uh, Confederate statues that uh, naturally are inflammatory to many people. And I guess this kind of got swept up with the uh, statue craze.
2: Mental, um There's an amazing statue of them, actually, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, of them, and they're in a canoe, and it's actually Mm -hmm. got, like, water flowing. They're, like, in mid, like, paddle. It's a really good statue, Um, but it doesn't have the dog in it. Some of them do, don't they? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was Uh, was a a remarkably diverse uh, group that they brought, so it's it's sort of ironic that it is viewed that way. Uh, There was a, a slave who came along with them. There were a number of Frenchmen. There were a number of Native Americans who did their uh, their uh, uh, you know groups at different times, sort of going in and out as long as they were near their their home territory.
2: Yeah, Sacagawea didn't. She wasn't dragged down on chains, was she?
1: She no, went no, willingly. She was, she was married to a Frenchman. The French. Yeah. was actually uh, she was actually captured by a war party of uh, Hidatsa and sold as a twelve year old girl to the Frenchman who became her husband. Uh, as her, uh, basically, as a potential wife.
2: <laughs> Beth shaking her head like, that sounds really shit.
1: Yeah, there's, it, it was, the West was a rough place.
2: Yeah. Um, Holmes, any questions? Yeah, John, you mentioned at the start that the purpose of the
5: expedition was to, to find a, a water route to the Pacific, which, by well, the sounds of like it, they did that, but then did they ever, was, was any use made of the route that they discovered?
1: Well, they were hoping to find a river that would go, all, flow all the way and they just couldn't, get over, couldn't find one that would go through the Rocky Mountains. They were able to take the Missouri River up to its source in the Rockies, but then they had to basically put the boats aside and, uh, and trace over the, uh, over the uh, Bitterroot Mountains in 1805. And uh, they got, many of them, they, they came close to dying. There was a lot of frostbite. But basically, the Rocky Mountains proved to be the barrier uh, that prevented that.
5: And then, what in terms of distance? How far did they? How far did they
1: cover? I read approximately eight thousand miles. Now they went round trip, and they uh, but they did a lot of uh, looping around. Uh, they took a different route on the way back. Uh, they met a number of different uh, native tribes. Um, so you know, the total amount of tracking that they did was probably pretty close to that. Although from a, you know, if you went in a straight line from St. Louis to Seattle, uh, it would be, you you wouldn't be that far.
5: And then you mentioned that when they came across sort of Native Americans and they, they conducted little transactions and then said America claims this land. Did they really understand what was being said then? I mean, you said there was, you know, lots of mistranslation it was going from English to French to Native American languages.
1: Yeah, the... Um, I think the concept was, was of course theoretical at that point. Uh, Spain actually had more control over the Western United States than did uh, the United States. In fact, Spain, the Spanish government sent a group, uh, a party of soldiers to track down and uh, capture the Lewis and Clark expedition. The the, uh, the Western United States was only part of, of the US the year before as a result of the Louisiana purchase from Napoleon. So. Uh, we really didn't have any practical ability to control it. I remember uh, uh, one time reading about the, the Texas Navy going down to the island of Cozumel, running the Texas flag up over the island and making the islanders swear allegiance and then sailing off and never coming back. And that's probably what a lot of these uh, native tribes thought would likely happen. Uh, the Americans were a strange group. They had uh, much more contact with the French traders, uh, one of whom had actually gone from Quebec a decade before
2: Hey, any questions?
1: Yeah, just one. I
9: think I mean, it's fascinating because I in, in my head, you just got this idea of, you know, maps where it just goes off into blankness and you're, and you're writing that for the first time. What what did they actually know when they set off? I guess they had a good idea of how far away the Pacific was, uh, but how much did they know about what, or, or think, or what, what was a the theory about what was in between?
1: Uh, they knew, they had basic reports from, uh, from different traders who had gone all through the uh, West. The fur trade was beginning to take off, actually as a result of Lewis and Clark it became a big business. It produced uh, the United States first multi-billionaire, John Jacob Astor. Uh, So the fur traders for the most part, um, and uh, it it was really the fur trade that probably provided the most data that they could go on. And uh, as they went along the river, they would learn pieces about the next area they were about to uh, enter through either traders or through uh, Native Americans. Uh, For instance, the uh, Sioux could tell them about the Mandan Indians, which is where they wintered. The Mandans could tell them about the uh, other Sioux tribes. Uh, When they got to uh, Great Falls, Montana, for instance, they learned about the Blackfeet and the Shoshone. So they sort of had to take pieces as they went, but they did not have much of a picture and that was what was so sensational when they came back. They were the first ones to be able to produce a map running from Saint Louis to the mouth of the Colum- to the end of the Columbia River, uh that would tell people here there here there not be, you know, uh dragons or whatever the, the old maps used to say.
2: Brilliant. Thanks very much, John. Uh let's go to all right, Alina, you go next. Okay, I'll introduce you. So People have used a bit more imagination with some of these A to B journeys than All Out Explorers. Uh, I want to go to Alina next.
12: So I've gone out of the box and you all know what what subject I've decided to go for. Cast your minds back, and this is not a laughing matter, it's not going to be a funny one by the way, I've gone all serious this time. So cast your minds back to the 1940s. Um, Basically you've gone to hell. Yes, I'm talking about Auschwitz. I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite escapes from Auschwitz. So back at that point, there were 928 escapes, 196 were successful, and 433 failed. So you can see on such a scale how many were successful and how many failed. So it's amazing that these guys even got out. Camp conditions, horrific, absolutely horrific. Um, Death at every corner, beatings, terror, and it... It, you just couldn't live the the amount of bodies were piling up the crematoriums were running overtime and i'm going to talk about four prisoners three of them were poles and one of them was a german so i'll start with the first one you know he came on the first mass transport on the 14th of june 1940 and he received number 711 he worked in the, bear with my German, Arbeit Einsatz, which was the office that basically gave out work assignments. He was the second of command because he was extremely fluent in German. Prison number two, Jan Komsky, again, from the first mass transport, he received number 564. But what was interesting about him is that he wasn't actually under his own surname. He was under a false name. So his name was... Jan Barash. he also was employed in the same office as a sketch artist. And anybody who's interested, he actually has some incredibly beautiful artwork uh, about his time in Auschwitz, so you can always go online and Google him. Third prisoner, Bolesov Kudbara. He arrived in September 1940, so a little bit later than the rest of the guys. He received number 4308, and again he was also employed in the same office. Otto Kuzel, our German. Um, I absolutely love this prisoner. He is one of my favourite prisoners. He received prisoner number two. He came in the first actual first transport on the 20th of May, 1940, part of 30 Kapo. Um, People who've listened to this before will remember me talking about prisoner number one. This is prisoner number two. Complete opposite, total flip, this guy was the camp angel. He did incredible things, but I, don't, I wish I could talk about him all day. I'm not going to. So he was actually the capo of the office. He dished basically out all the jobs. So at this point, there have been quite a few ideas for escape the, by these guys. Kortopara and Komsky are the two that uh, initiate this. They're under false names. Both of them are under false names. So they know that there won't be any reprisals. Their family won't be dragged into Auschwitz, they won't be tortured, they won't be put on display for all for all to see. So they decide to go through with it, and alongside come Yomushevsky and Kuzen. So what they do, they establish contact with the home army that's operating in the area. The Home Army provides maps, civilian clothing, and hiding place. The escape is set the 29th of December 1942. What else do they need? Well, they decide that having someone dressed as an SS officer would be ideal. So they managed to put together different clothing slowly over months and uh, the slight problem was they also needed a revolver which they couldn't get hold of. So in the end what they ended up doing was they used a flashlight in the empty holster. So Kuzel goes and gets horses and carts from the camp farm uh, and on it he loads a couple of cabinets. This is quite smart, actually. I quite uh, think this is really, really, really clever, the way they do this. And Komsky and Kuchbara walked to some blocks that are under construction at the time, where Kuchbara changed into the SS uniform, popped the flashlight into the empty holster, and they both waited for Kuzel and Janoshevsky. So they drove, they basically jumped on this horse and cart, horses, sorry, and cart, and um, drove through the main gate. And as they drove through the main gates, Kudwara says hail to the SS guards, and off they basically went. They, the reason they managed to get through is these were very well-known prisoners, especially of prison. Everybody knew who he was. So they ended up posing as this working group with your SS man, with your, who is your guard, and with a capo who is escorting them. And all they're doing is delivering two wardrobes. So they went down uh, by the river Soa to Broszkowice. they went straight through a checkpoint, nobody checked anything, they ended up going to uh, an empty village which is Droskovice at the time, so for people who don't know, um, the whole area around the camp was empty, the villages were empty because there were no civilians allowed to be living there. So the Home Army ended up hiding some clothes in Brozkovice, so the four prisoners changed, left the horses there, then they met with four men uh, with, on bikes, who took them to Libyanse where they stayed with Andrzej Harap, who was one of the Home Army leaders, for a week, uh, sorry for a month, apologies. The underground ended up making them new documents, new identities, and after a month they crossed over to the general government at night. Januszewski and Konski end up going to Kraków and Kutbara and Kuzel go to Warszawa. I'm going to tell you about the fates of these guys. Um, Not everything is uh, positive. So Jan Komsky, um, he ended up going with Janoszewski to Warsaw. They end up stopped on a train. Everybody on the train is arrested. Men, women, children, everybody. And they knew where they were going to be sent. They were all going to be sent to Auschwitz. There There was no discussions. So Komsky ends up trying to escape on his way to prison. And Jarszczyk was supposed to go with him, but for some reason, Komsky says he doesn't know why he didn't jump out of the train. But what they do is they shoot at Komsky, he gets shot, gets captured, funnily enough, avoids execution. I mean, this guy is one of the most luckiest people I've ever heard of. He gets sent back to Auschwitz under his new name, Yusef Nosek. He meets a couple of former prisoners, now the danger at this point is, is that he cannot be caught because if he's caught they're going to execute him. He ends up getting himself on a transport, transport to Buchenwald and he survives the war. Januszewski is sent back to Auschwitz, nobody knows really what happens. He doesn't end up arriving there, they believe he committed suicide on the way. Kuchbara completely different kettle of fish, this guy, nobody knows really what happens. They, they know that he got to Warsaw. They know he was arrested and put into Paviak because he was identified as an escapee. There are three versions of this guy's death. Either he was shot by the Germans, or he was executed by the Polish underground for cooperation with the Gestapo, or there is another third possible option, was that he committed suicide because his wife brought poison into the hospital because he was so badly tortured, they put him into hospital and she gave him the poison and he died. So... Pick whichever option you think is is the right one. And then finally, Kuzel, he got to Warsaw. He actually managed to evade them for a good few months and got arrested on the 25th of September 1943. He was sent back to Auschwitz, but he didn't get executed. He was only put into Block 11 because he was German. If he was Polish, they would have executed him in a heartbeat. He ended up being released from Block 11 in February 1944, where he was sent to Blossomberg where he was liberated and he's also a witness in the Auschwitz trials as well so for me an incredibly remarkable person so there we go that is my interpretation of a journey.
2: Pete any questions?
9: No I'm, I'm still trying to process that I'm still trying to get my head around that incredible story so uh, no questions from me at the moment.
2: Holmes?
5: I think it was the, the it's a, it is an incredible story, as Pete said, and they're all obviously very brave. I think the first thing that came up, which was um, one of them, and I obviously, I grew up in the Midlands in the 70s and early 80s. I cannot pronounce foreign names whatsoever. So I could go I just have to go with their description. But you mentioned that one of them was um, worked as a sketch artist, which this is a bit of a side issue, admittedly. But what, what did a sketch artist do in
12: Auschwitz? Scratch that. I'm not 100% sure to answer that question. I'm going to be fair. But, 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 there were certain prisoners, and it's not Jan there was another prisoner, um, actually funny enough in the first transport, who used to do sketches of SS men, and they would take them home and send them home and do various things with that. So I'm not sure if Komsky did the same thing, but um, there were prisoners like that who actually ended up working in like painting commandos where they would paint the blocks and do things like that, so kind of interlinked with that.
5: Well, they also they it sounds really odd, but I mean, I, I, I had a trip there many years ago. But there, there was a brothel there, wasn't
12: it? Yes, there was Block Twenty Four, uh, which uh, is funny enough. The archives, and one of my friends actually works um, in one of the uh, what do you call it the, the the special rooms.
5: So this this particular escape, did, did the Germans realise that they'd escaped?
12: No, not for a while. There's um, there's I actually found documents in Warsaw that show uh, that Kuzel had escaped and they'd given him a description of him and things like that. So that's quite interesting. It, 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 they wouldn't have re- realized to a whirlpool at the end of the day, basically.
5: But if they'd have been caught in their attempts, they would have been—they would have all been killed pretty quickly, yeah?
12: Kuzen would have been the only one that would have survived. So what they would have done is they would have paraded them around. and Sometimes they would give them signs and say, look, I, I have returned. Uh, they would have beaten them. Sometimes they would shoot them and display the bodies uh, right by the gate where the prisoners would come and go. I mean, the humiliation was just all, for example, there'd be a public execution. Um, there was a public execution further uh, a couple of years later that prisoners were hung in front of everybody. It just it depends on, on the time and the moment and what the SS wanted to do.
5: And then, then uh, there was another guy. Apologies, I can't remember it, or, or pronounce his name. But you mentioned that at the end it was all right. He was just put into block eleven, and then he survived. But, um, block eleven was the sort of punishment and execution block, wasn't
12: it? Yes, it was. But Cuzen was German, so, so if he was
5: in block eleven, he would have been he would have been punished like other inmates in block eleven.
12: Yeah, but he wouldn't have been executed. So remember when I spoke about Brodnievich? Uh, Brod ended up in block 11 quite a few times for punishment, but he still came out and still became a capo at the end of the day. So it was one rule for the Germans and one rule for everybody else.
5: And the capos they were the ones who sort of enforced discipline amongst working groups, is that right?
2: Yeah, functionary prisoners.
5: Thanks for that, no, nothing further from me.
2: Oh, okay, let's replenish drinks and then we will reconvene. Oh, do you know what we're caution, laughing our way. heads up on our brain? Because science and philosophy historian Kit has got an issue with William Bly. What is your issue with William Bly? Uh, William Bly spent
10: four weeks trying to get around Cape Horn and failed. But
2: Cl- Clive's um... argument is that this was not the bit he was arguing as the greatest journey.
6: Mm. I mean, What's we it, what, all take bad journeys in our time. Have you ever tried to go on the northern line? That doesn't write you off <laughs> from other important journeys you've done. <laughs> I, will, I will say, actually, a, a
10: quadrant is actually a quarter um, of, of a circle, whereas a sexton is a sixth of a circle. A sexton is like a, qu- a pocket quadrant. So he even had the better instrument
6: to navigate with on your I story. I did
2: not know that. I forgot we had a scientific Wow. Problem.
6: I've, I've so, History
2: hacks official science
6: consultant. <laughs> I'm educated <laughs> now.
9: Oh. So, Clive, the the bounty when it set off hit storms when it was not far off, not far out of uh, port. <laughs> that
6: that could have done it, couldn't it? <laughs> do, you th- do you think that was the cause of the mutiny? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just say yeah, that, that again, because I didn't, I didn't get that on tape. Pete, <laughs> that, what hap- what else was William Bligh guilty of?
9: So so on that on that voyage on that fateful voyage they had their cargo of beer for the journey and they, they took beer with them on ships to uh, partly to uh, defend against scurvy and all the barrels were lashed to the deck and they hit this big storm and the, the the ties broke and the entire
6: supply of beer for the journey went overboard not long after they were out of britain oh dear but the reason that probably didn't lead to the mutiny is there were no breweries at the time on Pitcairn Island. Yes. <laughs> so if, if it had been the cause, I'd have sailed someone with a brewery or a pub.
2: Um, Pete, just briefly, this is not a contender because you were a judge and that would be mean. You have made a quite an epic journey, haven't you? Tell everyone what journey you made.
9: So I retraced the sea voyage of India parallel from Burton-on-Trent to Calcutta. How long uh, did it take? It I'm took me what? three months. You know? And uh, the the thing is, it's a it's a famous journey because the beer matured and ripened on the way. And they used to go because of the trade winds. They used to have to you used to have to go across to South America first, and then come back, loop back through the South Atlantic, go around the Cape of Good Hope, and then go up through the Indian Ocean, round oh. uh, and round to Calcutta. And of course, once the Suez Canal was built, no one in their right mind would ever do that journey again. So it kind of destroyed the myth. So it took me six months to plan this journey and put it together because no one sells that route anymore. So I had yeah. to do a, a P&O cruise ship to uh, the Canary Islands. Then I managed to get onto a toll ship that was sailing from uh, Tenerife to Brazil. Then I got on a cargo ship, a container ship that went down the coast of Brazil, back across the South Atlantic uh, and up through the Arabian Peninsula and eventually into Mumbai. So it was. Uh, I had, a, I, had a, I had a breakdown along the way but apart from that I was going to say at <laughs>
2: what point on that journey did you just think fuck this
9: well, it was, there was five weeks on the container ship so it was a quarter of a mile long with 17 crew and officers and I wasn't I was encouraged not to talk to anybody I, I dined in the crew's sorry I dined in the officers mess and they all fucking hated each other so there was no conversation uh, <laughs> over meals at all was like, there, was, there was almost a mutiny on there um, and so I didn't speak to anyone for five weeks and there was no communication off the ship, I mean there was through the bridge but not, you know, my I remember going, I think we were about 60 miles off, off the Cape of Good Hope and I was standing on the, I had one bar of signal and I was holding up my Blackberry and my phone like this just going, please, please <laughs> and uh and not long after that i had a breakdown where i was sitting in my cabin on my own after not speak to another for three weeks and just um I, I split into two people and i was lying on the floor swearing at myself cursing and i was also sitting on the on the settee watching myself on the floor doing it and sounds, sounds like lockdown yeah i was gonna say <laughs> I
5: mean, anyone, 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 the, anyone who's been on anyone who's been on and not been in club class that sounds very familiar well, yeah. No, the funny thing
10: was, while, while when coronavirus happened, I was actually circumnavigating South America, and so I was told to go back to the UK while I was in the Panama Canal, and we all sort of just had to sort of sail straight back across the Atlantic. So I totally get the sort of the madness of it all. Did,
9: did you get? Was
5: the weather really bad when you did it? Was it? Was
9: it really oh my God! No, form? it was like glass. We're sailing on the Cape of Good Hope, and it was just like this blue glass. It was the most amazing thing. Mm-hmm. So you never got seasick or anything like that? No, I still don't know if I'm seasick or not because I had such good weather. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the best thing was I'm, I'm quite shy and, um, in, in in person. I'm not very good at meeting people. But after all that isolation, when I got to Mumbai and you get all these people coming up to you going, oh, my friend, can I sell you a trip to the Taj Mahal? Can I speak to you? I just want to practice my English. And I'd be like, yeah, mate, come on. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have a chat. <laughs>
6: Did you drink
9: the beer on the way? Days in, after three days in Delhi, people would see me and run away from me because it was just like, oh, it's that mad bloke. <laughs> <laughs> did you drink the beer on the considering way? Considering the
7: it? size of container ships as well, and they're only manned like by seventeen people, it's yeah. and even less in an officer's mess. Yeah, because
9: they're like a mile long. Some of them they're ridiculous. Yeah, I, I thought I was just big time going to Dubai, and then the ones in there were just insane.
2: Wow. Right, let's get back on track. Um, mm-hmm. Kate tried to change to a word document in excitement and cut herself off last time. (laughs) So let's try again because Kate Spoonart is very excited about the journey that she's brought in today because she's really passionate about this bit of history actually. And as soon as I nominated this topic, she was like, boom, yeah, I'm having this. And I was like, okay, all right, calm down. Um, But yeah, Kate, what have you picked and why?
8: So... um... I've picked the 1925 serum run. Um, I've actually written a kind of a, 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 put together a short story. So if it's okay, I'd like to read some excerpts from that. Go for it. A lot can happen in the next three years.
3: Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance.
8: So, this is the incredible story of how 150 amazing dogs helped by some very brave men saved 11,000 lives, a seemingly impossible race against time, the hero dogs and their extraordinary journey to Nome. In 1925, the largest town in North Alaska sits hunched on the coast of the icy Bering Sea, about 250 kilometres east of Siberia, on the edge of the Arctic Circle. Dog sleds are the primary means of transportation and communication. Able to carry 500 kilograms of freight, they deliver the mail, the groceries, the preacher, and haul out gold and furs. In December, Dr. Curtis Welsh, the only physician for Nome, treated a few children for what he then diagnosed as tonsillitis. Over the following weeks, he began to fear something far worse. On January the 20th, Welsh diagnoses the first case of diphtheria, with another the following day. Realizing an epidemic is imminent, Welsh calls the mayor and they implement a the quarantine. Without antitoxin, the mortality rate is expected to be close to 100% of the total population of 11,000. On January the 22nd, Welsh sends telegrams to the US Public Health Service in Washington, as well as other major towns in Alaska. A hospital in Anchorage finds some antitoxin. Though not sufficient to defeat the epidemic, it may help contain it until a larger shipment arrives. They place the serum in glass vials, wrapped in furs in a metal cylinder. It is carried north to Nanana by railroad. The problem is how to negotiate the final 1,100 kilometres to Nome. A dog sled relay is proposed. It's estimated the serum would survive only six days under the brutal conditions. The journey through this rugged wilderness, across frozen waterways and over treeless tundra, usually takes a month. In perfect conditions, it had been done in nine days. They would have to cut that by a third, in the most unforgiving winter on record. The famous dog sled racer, Leonard Seppeler, was an obvious choice for the run. Acquiring his first team of dogs because a polar explorer cancelled his trip, Seppler developed an unprecedented rapport, in particular with Togo, a grey and brown Siberian husky. The now 12-year-old dog had become Simpler's best friend. Together they'd covered tens of thousands of kilometres, guided Roald Amundsen around Alaska, and won numerous major races. Mayor Maynard proposes flying the antitoxin to Nome. The first winter flight in Alaska had been a year earlier, in a reliable DH-4, and the worst conditions were minus 10. Still, the plane was almost unflyable and made several crash landings. The only planes operating in Alaska in 1925 were vintage standard J biplanes. It was decided the mushers would run, and on January the 27th at 9 p.m., Frank Knight hands the cylinder, weighing nine kilograms, to Wild Bill Shannon and his team of relatively inexperienced dogs, led by Blackie. It's minus 50 and falling fast. The paws of Shannon's Malamute pound the snowpack trail on the first steps of the Great Race of Mercy. Despite running alongside his team, by the time he reaches Minto, Shannon is suffering from hypothermia, his face black with frostbite. He rests a few hours and continues. When the trail becomes impassable, he travels on the ice of the frozen river. 84 kilometres later, Wild Bill hands the precious package to Edgar Calland, who makes the trip to Manly Hot Springs without complication except that the owner of the roadhouse there has to pour water over his frozen hands to free them from the handlebars of the sled. Two more drivers run the antitoxin from Manly Hot Springs to Tanana during the remainder of the day and night. The next day, the serum is handed between a further five teams. The Arctic winter means they travel through almost total darkness, with only the moon and the northern lights dancing overhead to illuminate the trail. Around midnight, the serum arrives at Whiskey Creek where the diminutive but wiry Edgar Nolna is waiting. He harnesses his malamutes and ties them to the front of a homemade birch sled. Wearing a squirrel-skin parka and reindeer mucklucks, he heads downriver. The frigid weather surpasses anything he's ever mushed in. I couldn't see the dogs because of the ice, he said. I just let them go and they followed the trail. During the night, he hands over the serum along with his sled and team of dogs to his brother George, who travels the next leg to Bishop Mountain. Two new cases of diphtheria are reported. As the dog sled teams race west, roadhouse owners provide periodic updates by telegram wherever possible. The crisis has become headline news across the US. All hope is in the dogs and their heroic drivers. Nome appears to be a deserted city, said one reporter. There is another death and a bad storm moving in. The governor decides to feed up the relay with more drivers, but there's no way to tell Sepala. The plan relies on the driver from the north catching him on the trail probably in total darkness, almost certainly during a blizzard. 21-year-old Charlie Evans and the next team heads out and almost immediately runs into ice fog caused by the frozen river Coyote breaking through its icy crust. The terrain is deceptively beautiful, but treacherous as a minefield. When the lashing wind drops, he can hear the trees freezing, cracking and popping like pistol shots. They struggle on through freezing fog, winding their way, avoiding the thin ice and, freezing, and the freezing river water but Charlie's lead dogs are exhausted. He's forced to unharness them and put them on the sled. He has no option but to take their place and pull the rest of the way. The number of cases reaches 27. Tommy Patterson leaves within half an hour of receiving the serum. They run the 58 kilometres to Kaltag in a mere three and a half hours, an average of more than 16 kilometres an hour, the fastest speed of any of the teams. A further three teams carry the package from Kaltag. They cover difficult terrain, often having to break their own trail. At least one of the men jogs most of the way. By the time they reach Shaktulik, the storm system is paralyzing Alaska with driving snow. Gale force winds have brought the temperature down to a bone-shattering minus 85 degrees. Still, nobody has managed to contact Seppala. He has no idea of the additional teams and faster progress, but he hasn't passed through Shaktulik yet. Henry Ivanov is waiting there just in case. He heads out with the package, but hasn't travelled far when he runs into trouble and his team get caught in their rigging. He is now stationary, cursing and frantically attempting to untangle them. Seppolo is approaching Shaktoumik when he thinks he hears a faint cry. Not believing anyone would be out in this storm, he dismisses it, but then hears it again, and through the blinding snow, he makes the dim glow of a lamp and the faint shape of a stationary sled. He shakes his head ruefully, sorry that he doesn't have time to stop, and they fly on past the stranded sled. Ivanov is running after him, shouting, The serum, serum, I have it here! Seppler realises and calls to Togo. They pull up and Ivanov hands off the package. Seppler swings his team round and heads back into the howling wind, Togo leading the team through the dark towards the most hazardous part of the trail. The shortcut across Norton Sand saves over a day's travel, but is extremely dangerous. It goes straight across the frozen sea, over the exposed ice. Togo and his fellow dogs struggle for traction on Norton Sand's glassy skin. The fierce winds rocking the ice threaten to break it apart and send them drifting out to sea. sepala has to rely on Togo's senses, but the swirling blizzard, roaring winds, and almost total darkness mean even he doesn't hear the ice cracking or realise they are drifting until too late. They're separated from the main ice crust by a fierce stretch of freezing water. sepala doesn't know what else to do. He throws Togo over the gap, hoping his stubborn determination will make him strong enough to haul the flow closer. It's as if the scrappy little husky knows. He pulls with everything he has and the gap seems to close, a little more. It's enough. The second pair jump and are over the gap, pulling, claws digging into the solid ice. The flow creaks closer, the next pair are over, and they start to pick up speed. The ice is close enough now that the sled's long birch runners bridge the gap, and Sephla breathes a shallow sigh of relief. Togo navigates the rest of the breaking ice, avoiding the cracks and soft spots, sometimes only a few feet from open water, and they arrive in Isaac Point at 8pm. They rest briefly before departing into the full power of the worsening storm. During the night, the wind increases to over 100 kilometres and the temperature drops to minus 100. The ice they crossed only a few hours earlier has gone, broken up and floated out to sea. The team climbed 5,000 feet along a ridge to the summit of Little McKinley Mountain. The trail is exposed and steep, gruelling for exhausted, sleep-deprived dogs. Having travelled over 400 kilometres, three times further than any other musher, Seth and his team arrive at Golovin and hand over the serum to Charlie Olsen, who shortly after setting out is blown off the trail by the increasing wind, which forces him to stop and put blankets on his dogs. He suffers extreme frostbite. Around 40 kilometres later, he makes it to Bluff. The same day, the 28th patient falls ill. The serum they are carrying is enough to treat 30 people. Winds rage at 130 kilometres now and messages are left at Solomon and Port Safety to stop the relay, believing a delay better than risking losing the serum together. Carson, the next musher, waits for a break in the weather, but sees the storm worsening and realises they risk the trail becoming completely impassable. He sets off into a cruel headwind and pelting snow, so fierce that his squinting eyes cannot see his wheel dogs, harnessed just in front of the sled. Carson puts complete trust in his lead dogs, Fox and Balto, who use instinct rather than sight to follow the trail. Ice begins to crust the long hairs of their dark brown coats as they navigate visibility so poor it is several kilometres before Carson realises they've passed Solomon, their scheduled stop-off point. They've followed the established, though now invisible, trail to the south, meaning they will not receive the message to halt due to the oncoming weather. They're running in the dark, through blizzards so thick it threatens to make them part of the scenery. Carson can do no more than trust Fox and Balto to keep them on track, and hold on trying to keep the rig upright. Several times, the sled is hurled off the trail, dragging the dogs with it. Each time, Carson has to stop to right the sled and untangle the dogs. It's a miracle none of them are injured. The team heads onto to Bonanza Slough when suddenly a massive gust flips the sled. Carson finds himself in a deep drift. He clambers out and crawls through the dark, managing to right the sled. He pats it down, feeling for the package. Methodically, then frantically. His stomach tightens. He drops to the ground, panic, cursing through his sprit- frostbitten body. He tears off his mitts and rummages through the snow, his hands blistered and blackening. Finally, his right hand finds something smooth and metallic. He manages to yank it out of the snow and lashes it to the sled before fleeing that hellish stretch. Believing the relay to have been halted at Solomon, Ed Rohn is asleep and his team not harnessed when Carson arrives at Port Safety. Fox, Balter and the team are running well and the weather's improving, so they carry on to run the final 40 kilometres to Nome. They pull onto Front Street at five thirty am on February the second. Carson stumbles to the front of the team, mutters "Damn fine dog to Balto and collapses. It came right down to just the spirit of men and dog against nature, said a reporter from Nome. The teams had covered one thousand and eighty four kilometers in one hundred and twenty seven hours just over five days, cutting the record almost in half, and not a single ampule of serum was damaged. It was thawed and being administered by noon meanwhile. The health service locates and ships 1.1 million units of the antitoxin to Seward Port in southern Alaska. A day's traveling north by railroad, and half will be taken to Nome by dog sled, the other half by airplane. On February 8th, half the batch left, with many of the same men and dogs running the trail, while the plane, which was not ready for another two days, then failed to start. The serum was delivered to Nome on February the 15th by Ed Rohn, the musher Carson had left sleeping on the first trip the official death toll from diphtheria was reported as five. These days, the Iditarod, the last great race on Earth, is run in memory of those awe-inspiring heroes. It honours the 1925 relay with many traditions that commemorate the Mushers, and part of the route still follows that of the Serum Run. Many descendants of the original dogs still run those trails, like Winnie and her crew, show dogs, too stocky to beat Siberians red for racing. But no one told her that. At the starting line, as the timer count back from ten, Winnie, the top-ranked female Siberian show dog in North America, is pulling so hard they can barely hold her. No one expects the fastest time in the six-dog category. But she wasn't a show dog running that day. She was Togo's great-granddaughter. Countless books and films have immortalised selfless heroes who risked everything on that life-or-death mission. In addition to the rod, the events of 1925 prompted a diphtheria vaccination programme, all but wiping out illness and relegating it to the minor position on the list of dreaded diseases. It also prompted the Kelly Act. Technology improved, and within a decade, ML routes were established in Alaska. Though dog sleds continued to be used until the mid-60s, when the Iron Dogs snowmobile took over, to this day, there are still no roads to Nome. Wow. Um,
2: Pete, any
8: questions?
9: I've... um... (laughs) <laughs> a, a, a brilliantly uh, delivered story. I, I'm just wondering why I've never heard of that before. Is that me being crap, or is or has this been sort of criminally overlooked, uh, or, or, or or do we just not care too much about Alaska over here? <laughs>
8: um, I uh, I don't think is it, it has Disney been. Over. Sorry. Is it a Disney film? It is at least two Disney films, yeah. Which I was really trying to avoid mentioning because yeah. I don't want people to think it's a Disney film and dismiss it, you know, because it was a really serious thing. But yes, there is a Disney film called Balto and another called Togo that was released last year, I think, though I've not seen either. Um, it's, I think it is not given the credit it's due, perhaps. Yeah,
5: yeah Kate, I, 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 in my notes that I wrote down the top, at the start you mentioned something about it being the final 1100 miles but what was the the distance of the entire journey
8: so the 1100 kilometers sorry i should have done it in miles living in spain i talk in kilometers um so the basically what happened was the serum was found in anchorage which is in the very far south of alaska it was taken by railroad up to um almost to fairbanks almost to the end of the line which is about I think 600 miles or kilometres, I get the two mixed up, um, then there was 1100 kilometres from the train station to Nome, that was the full distance that the dogs and sleds travelled.
5: But then how many people were, in, were involved in that? And how, many, how many humans? 20. 20?
8: yeah so there were 20 humans with 150 dogs and approximately well the teams ranged from between six um Leonard tepler had six dogs um, up to I think the maximum was 19 but that was quite rare they were mostly nine or 11 dog teams
6: and then how
5: did they get them to go so fast did they have one of those um, big long grabby things that throws a ball really far that you just keep doing in front of them <laughs> in like a relay time
8: no I think I think Huskies um having a, a half husky myself they're just a bit mad and you don't need to give them much cause to run fast a lot
5: and then at the end i think you said they, they pretty much saved everyone but there were, there were five deaths is that is that no.
8: right yeah five people were recorded were reported as having died from diphtheria um yeah so that's pretty good out of eleven eleven thousand. that's that's a good success rate
5: yeah Okay, nothing more for me. Thanks.
8: Thank you. Pete,
2: hey, you're getting one of those dog films for your date night, you reckon?
9: Every every Saturday since lockdown started, we have... Um, uh, we take it in turns to do date night, uh, where one of us cooks a nice meal and uh, then chooses a film afterwards. And this is going to just melt my wife. It really is. That's going to be fantastic. <laughs>
2: you're going to get some afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Piggy, I'm Horrible. Uh, Right. Thanks very much, Kate. I'm going to go to Kit next, our newcomer, Kit Chapman. Are you ready? I am ready. Do it. Okay, I haven't gone for a
10: science story, you'll be glad to know. Um, I've gone for the original epic journey that everyone thinks around, around the world in 80 days, only the real story done by two women. Uh, so around, around the World in 80 Days was published in 1873 by Jules Verne. It was a massive hit. And the, 15 years later, no one had done it. No one was entirely sure if he could do it. Uh, so Joseph Pulitzer, who ran the New York World, decides to send his best correspondent to go and try and beat Phileas Fogg and go around the world in less than 80 days. And the correspondent is Nellie Bly. Uh, it's the pen name of Elizabeth Pink Cochrane, uh, And she's a badass investigative journalist. Um, She was like an original Lois Lane. She made her name by being committed into an insane asylum and then reporting on the abuse that patients suffered inside. It was called 10 Days in a Madhouse, and it sort of made her name. And on the 14th of November, 1888, uh, she sets off for Southampton to go around the world from New York, uh, carrying an overcoat, a carpet bag, and £200 in English money. She's travelling alone. She doesn't bring a change of clothes, Uh, She's 24 years old, but she's up for the adventure. Uh, The problem is she's a terrible traveler. Uh, Bly's main trait was that she hated mornings and rarely got up before midday. (laughs) On the trip, if a steward woke her up, she would swear her head off at them, go and have breakfast, and then go back to bed. Um, At one point, one steward finds her so smelly because she hasn't changed clothes, they throw water on her, she gets out of bed, strips naked, gets back into bed and sleeps until midday. That's just how she rolls. Second, she gets terribly seasick. This is the first time she's actually left the uh, the continent. Of, of, she'd actually been to Mexico, but she'd never been outside uh, North America. And Pupita guts out for the first three days before she recovered. And finally, this is something she didn't tell Pulitzer. She didn't own a passport. And he, she only finds out about this as she's going across the, uh, the Atlantic. And they have to wire... Uh, the branch in uh, in London to go and arrange a passport for her at the US Embassy. Um, she also finds out as she's traveling that she absolutely hates the British who all assume she's some weird eccentric heiress and constantly hit on her, um, which is a problem because she's going to spend the next 60 days going through the British Empire. So she hits Southampton, she goes to London to get her passport across to France for about half an hour, uh, changing trains in Amiens, she actually meets Jules Verne. She goes to Brindisi in Italy through the sewers, down Aden, down into Colombo. In Singapore, she gets really, really lonely and buys a monkey that wears a fez called McGinty, um, which just pisses on all of her stuff. And for the rest of the voyage, anyone who goes near her basically gets savaged by McGinty. <laughs> she rocks up in Hong Kong on day 44. It's Christmas Eve. As a present, the British decide to take her up to Canton so she can witness a Chinese execution, a woman being tied up, on a cross and cut into pieces, and then bring her along to a leper colony. And while she's there, one of the British casually mentions that she's losing her race, at which point she goes, what race? And finds out that she's actually three days behind a competitor. Because six hours after she left, Cosmopolitan magazine, the same Cosmo you can buy in stores today, found out about what the New York world was doing and sent their correspondent, Elizabeth Bisland, the other way around the world. So Bislin sets off by train across the United States and then goes over the Pacific and goes the other way. Uh, she is the complete opposite of Bly. She is classy. She loves all things British. She is known as the most beautiful woman in New York. She's typically a society writer. But off she trots. Um, she heads across the U.S. by, by rapid train straight across the, uh, the Pacific. She's leading the whole way. Uh, in Hong Kong, her ship slips a screw and she has to get a slower ship. But she still manages to get to London on a really good time. And she's going to head down to Southampton and catch the Ems, which is this fast ship straight across the Atlantic, which has been bribed to wait for her. Bribed by Cosmopolitan magazine. As she's at Charing Cross Station waiting for a train to Southampton, someone comes up to her and tells her the Ems has already sailed and she needs to go to Ireland instead. And she believes this. She heads off to Cork in Ireland and uh, and she manages to get a really slow, rust bucket ship called the Bethina which is apparently the worst ship in the Cunard fleet. It's made up of you know, concrete and, um, and God knows what else. Uh, and she, on the 18th of January, she heads off. Bly, meanwhile, is three days out of San Francisco in the middle of the Pacific being shat on by a monkey. She arrives in San Francisco. She's behind schedule and disaster strikes. There is snow across the Rocky Mountains. There are no trains across America. A fellow reporter from the world trots out on cross-country skis, manages to get over the Rockies, and arranges a private train for Bly so she can circumvent around the route. Um, by this time, she learns that one million people have, have started subscribing to the world uh, newspaper, and there is a competition to guess how long it will take her to get around the world, which has just flooded the offices. She is the most famous woman in the world. She travels to, across America on this train, Uh, via Columbus, Ohio. She arrives in New Jersey to a ticker tape parade on the 25th of January, 1890. Um, I can't be right because she left in 1888. 18, sorry, 1889 um, at 3.51 p.m., 72 days, six hours and 11 minutes after she left. Bislin, meanwhile, has been caught in gale after gale after gale across the Atlantic. Uh, She arrives on January the 30th, four and a half days after Bly. No one is out to meet her. But both women went around the world in less than 80 days, uh, basically for, for a newspaper bet. I
2: love this. I am fully Team Bly. I like the stinky, uh, <laughs> raging, lunatic one. I know Beth's with me, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. girl crush. Team Bly. Total girl crush on her. The other one sounds up her own arse, if I'm honest. Uh, Pete, any questions?
9: I've got so many questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll limit them for now. Um, do we know? So, had anyone? So, this was you said. Uh, well, fifteen years after the Verne yeah, novel, fifteen years. What? What was? Was there a? Was there an appetite for kind of beating this? Was, was it a big thing, or was this something that uh, that they just come up with? It was.
10: It was actually a big thing. There were several people that sort of tried and planned to attempt it. There was one guy who actually tried to do it um, and he was incredibly eccentric and then sort of gave up halfway and then came back and decided that that was good enough and that counted as his 80 days. (laughs) Um, There was all kinds of people, um, there was a sort of a a real push to do it and Nellie Bly was really sort of not a front-runner to do it, um, mainly because of her gender. People thought that a woman traveling alone wouldn't be safe, things like that. Um, but uh, she managed to persuade that uh, that she was as tough as nails and she was the person yes. to
5: do it.
2: Holmes, any questions?
5: Sorry, I was just pouring a beer out. Um, no, not really. I, it, I have to say, and to my own shame, I thought Phileas Bog was real, to be honest. I mean, go back my... <laughs> i go I go back to my... Uh early 80s Midlands comprehensive school education. But it was sort of Michael Palin used to refer to him when he was going around the world in 80 days, didn't he? By saying by a certain date he was here and, you know. He did. So I was misled by Michael Palin as well. I like
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear.
10: Yeah, there was also the cartoon lion, Phileas Fogg, which you could see oh, go around the world as
2: well. That was when I was little. You mean I was that wasn't real either? <laughs> the theme tune was epic. And he's roughly the same age as me. That was epic, wasn't it?
0: Yeah.
10: But I, think- I, I don't remember the snacks. I mean, I remember the... Or I know the theme tune to Around the World in 80 Days still. Um, oh, go on, which do I'm, it. I'm, As is a Fog, I'm the one who made the bet and I know I'll be exactly that was it. right yes. on time. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, childhood.
10: Yeah, it's just it's, it's in there somewhere. And, uh, and this, this story made the careers of, of both of those women. Um, both of them became multimillionaires. Um, uh, Bislin married a, a lawyer called Charles Whitman Wetmore and she became a sort of a, a major society figure. Bly went on to become a barrel magnate, um, and she, she sort of made her made millions sort of selling barrels, and then ended up in Serbia during World War I and was arrested as being a British spy, which is kind of strange given that she hated the British.
2: Well, not um, only that, but we're on the same side as them as well.
5: <laughs> well, yeah.
2: <laughs> Just saying. Right,
10: it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really it's okay, fascinating but... lives.
5: I like the way when, when you sang the theme tune, that. Um, Six of you were sort of dancing to it, but me, Clive, and uh, Pete and John were just stay completely still thinking we were fucking working by this time. So. I,
4: think, I think, I think Beth's got no idea what we're talking about either, but for a different reason,
7: yeah. Damn yeah. Um, same, damn so I think it was before my time, <laughs>
9: yeah. But our time, has this not been made into a movie? I mean, there is the, the Vern things had at least two movies, has, hasn't this one been a movie? It'd make a way better movie than the Vern. Um,
2: yeah, but it's about so about women, Hollywood doesn't care.
9: It, it hasn't. So, bizarrely, there is a movie about Nellie Bly,
10: um, which is about her time in the Madhouse. Um, and it's got Christina Ricci in it. Um, it's it's actually, they make stuff up for the movie. I have no idea why, because the truth is is actually far more interesting. But in the movie, they, they put her in a chastity belt and slip leeches underneath the chastity belt. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit gruesome.
2: Yeah, but, but to that, be honest, that... Christina Ricci's always struck me as a bit of a wrong un.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she plays like
2: alcoholics and murderesses. That's kind of. Well, a I'm pretty sure Andy Dorman back me up she here. She's A bit of filth, right?
5: I, I couldn't possibly comment. I? <laughs> I mean, if, if you've had, Lee, if you've had Lee just shoved under your chastity bill it's going to have an effect, isn't it? Well, I'm really? just
2: saying that she's never played anyone normal. Can you remember her ever playing anyone normal? No,
6: I no. <laughs> can't.
2: The blank. Yeah.
6: Yep. I'm trying to imagine what the Cosmopolitan line on this was.
10: Well, the, the Cosmopolitan, they, they were very keen to say that it wasn't a race. They just thought they would send their correspondent and see what happened. Um, but they went all out sort of to, to try and win it. I mean, as I said, they bribed the, the M's to sort of wait in Southampton for their, uh, for their, their girl Bislin to arrive. Um, but she was sort of misguided in, in Charing Cross. And they were furious that she didn't win. They were really angry about it.
2: That sounds Kip, like they, Arsenal. New... That sounds Sorry. like Arsenal. It's all about <laughs> the squeaking parts and being classy, um, unless they win. In, in which case they've planned an open top bus tour like three weeks before. Kip, do they they know Arsenal know fan missed...
7: TV ranting and raving. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a competition until we win. Kip,
5: do they know who who misguided at Charing Cross?
10: No, this is one of the big mysteries. No one has any idea who this person was. And the cosmopolitan insisted that somehow someone was trying to sabotage the race, all this kind of stuff. And it, was, you know, it didn't count because of this, of this misguided thing. But um, I mean, the world cheated as well. They, they were supposed to only use commercially available transport. But because of the Rockies thing, because of the snow, they chartered a special um, train to get her across just so she could win. So neither side played fair.
2: I'd laugh my head off if it was just some pissed bloke at the station that, like, <laughs> screwed with her. <laughs> Turn it the wrong way. Like, no intentions based on the race whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
10: Just a piss was, it, head. It was horrific as well. I mean, when she got to, um, uh, to Coven Island, which is where the, uh, the ship, the Bathina, was sailing from, um, there was already a storm out there. It actually took four hours to row out to the boat so she could leave. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, she had a rough time with it going across the Atlantic.
2: The irony is she arrived back smelling worse than the woman that didn't take a change <laughs> of clothes with her. Yeah. This needs to be a film, just because it would be hilarious. With Christina Ritchie, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Brilliant. I really like that one. Well done. What a debut. I'm really impressed with that. Uh, let's go to... Oh, who have we got left? Let's go to James next. James has been so excited about this all week. I
7: I have because it is probably one of my favourite stories ever since I learned about it. I think Lockie was going to go for this one, but I beat him to it. So Um, I've gone for Sir Robbie Knox Johnston and the Golden Globe Race. It was mentioned a bit earlier by Kate in relation to Donald Crowhurst, uh, but I won't really mention that. It's also known as A Voyage for Mad Men. And it is a void for madmen because it's and women. It's a non-stop circumnavigation of the world. You can't have any assistance whatsoever. You navigate by sextant. You have radios, but they usually eventually break. The boats are fairly primitive. They're not like the modern day boats at all. Um it, you're basically living the better part of a year, up to a year, in something the size of a Volkswagen bus. And there's even less space because you have to take everything with you. The people that took part were neither sportsmen or racing yachtsmen. Um, I'll briefly go over the nine competitors. John Reachway and Che Blythe, both household names at the time as they rode together across the Atlantic. Um, funny enough, Chay Blythe didn't know how to sail on the day he left for the competition. Uh, <laughs> Rob Knox-Johnson, who I'll be on about, Sir Robin. Uh, Bernard Montessier, uh, the famous French sailor and author. He was among the favourites for the event. And I do have a soft spot for him because he's actually a badass. Uh, Louis Fougeron, a friend of Bernard's. Bill King, former Royal Navy sub-commander ace. Nigel Tetley, a Royal Navy lieutenant commander at the time. Alex carozo also known as the Italian Chichester. And then Donald Crowhurst, an electronics engineer. So Robin Knox Johnson, he decided to take part partly because he just wanted to do it because it just sounded like a challenge. But also he didn't want the French to have another record because they had the record for across the Atlantic and something else with Tabley. League. Um, so he didn't want he was very uptight British old school British merchant marine captain. He didn't want the French to have another record. He used a boat he made while he was a merchant marine captain called Suhali. She's basically overbuilt of Indian teak. She was based on a Norwegian lifeboat type, Regnings uh, Koita is my best pronunciation of that, and my Norwegian's fairly good, so that should be fine. She wasn't really right for the round-the-world voyage. She did try and get another boat first, but the money was too much, and Suhali was there. She just needed outfitting. Um, he took a year's worth of supplies, 1,500 tins without labels, varnished and coded. Um, the food is among you all of this. 216 tins of corned beef, 144 tins of stewing steaks, 48 tins of pork sausages, 722 tins each of green beans, running beans, carrots, one mixed veg. Um, f- something like. F- 144 tins of baked beans, 48 tins of spaghetti, 216 tins of condensed milk, 40 tins of processed cheese, fruit jam, salad dressing, cooking fat, and much more. He took a whole small workshop of spare parts, etc., with him. Loads of classical books and instructive works, and he also did a correspondence course for the Institute of Transport examinations during this voyage. He took it with him. Before he left, he had to be talked to by a psychiatrist who declared him distressingly normal. And this was a guy that was about to do a circumnavigation non-stop. Diagnosed as distressingly normal. (laughs) Uh, He also had 100 rounds of .303 ammunition and a Bible. Sailed on the 14th of June. Um, Harbour official noted, real old ice-breaking boat. If she hit England, I would be worried for England. <laughs> so um, he liked to jump overboard and swim alongside the boat with a line while it was on journey. First problem he came across, he found excessive water was getting into the boat. He was bilge pumping twice a day. Uh, so he dived over eventually and a look and he found large gaps in the seam of the boats on both sides. So he had to re-cork it, um, hammer cotton strips into her, um, and then for better cover, he got some copper sheets he had to do as well. But first he had to kill a circling shark, and that was a bit risky because he had to, if he killed the shark, more could come. So eventually, he killed it. By the 6th of August, his winch brakes kept failing. His main goosenecks was coming apart. And if the gooseneck comes apart, you basically can't sail. So he had to be really concerned about that. He'd only gone about maybe 8,000 miles at this point, if look. He had to make his own feeler gorges to fix the spark plugs and radio charger because he never took a feeler gorge with him. By September the 5th, one of the main wind vanes had bent and split, and this was part of his self-steering. Suhali was wrongly aligned in a wild cross seas, uh, managed to align her, but boat was flooded and interior bulkheads shifted, plus cracks in the cabby. So it could have completely come apart. His self-steering, by September the 10th, his self-steering Tim Trabs had broken, had to dive overboard to replace it with the one spare he had. Same day, he found his water tanks had been contaminated. He now only had enough water for 40 days, if that, and Australia was 50 days away by this point in his journey. Approximately the 15th of September, he got battery acid in his eye and he could have lost his eyesight and he could have easily gone back at that point. But at this point, he decided to carry on. By the 31st of October, the gooseneck finally broke. The spare Chimtrap broke and sung. Somehow repaired his original one so he could still self-steer. Managed to fix the gooseneck. His sails kept splitting and he kept having to repair them for hours. By the 3rd of November, his self-steering was gone for good. So he wouldn't be sleeping as much. He'd be up at least 16 hours a day. His radio was knocked out. The tiller snapped, the rudder was loose. He had to repair both as best he could. And he still hadn't gone round Cape Horn at this point, by the way. And 6th of November, he'd last seen land four months before. Used a trick founded by Joshua Slocum to steer so he could at least get some sleep. Uh, saw Cape Ottaway about 10th of November, when which is just off New Zealand. He had to fix the top of his main mast. On the 19th and 20th of November, he ran aground near Otago Harbour. He spoke briefly to a reporter on another boat, and, uh, but was told Bernard was closing fast, so he left as soon as possible. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, this is something quite funny. He decided to drink whiskey, sang his own Christmas carols, did the loyal toast to the Queen. He heard about Apollo 8 and decided to ponder what was his journey about, what was their journey about. Um, by December the 30th he'd been around the, the roaring 40s, he'd had a month of easterly winds hitting him in the face in an area known for westerlies which he needed to go round, like Cape Horn and everywhere and he was starting to get a bit pissed off at the winds <laughs> by the 10th of January his mainsail split took hours to repair but replaced with an old one, he burned his hand, he had burst blisters January the 14th his gooseneck broke again by the 15th, he did a crude but ingenious repair using metal plate from the broken self-steering gear. 17th of January, finally rounded Cape Horn. 23rd of March, this is interesting. People were so worried because they'd not heard from him by four months for this point. NATO started a search for him a thousand miles to the north in the wrong direction. 17th of March, he ended up having appendicitis. Now, he was worried it was at the time, but then it seemed to go away. So he put it down to the bully beef going off. However, a year and a half later, they he had to have his appendix removed because he did have appendicitis there, and they found scar tissue on it. So it somehow miraculously healed itself. By the sixth of April, he finally contacted another ship by Aldis Lamp. Seventh of April, saw the Azores. Uh, 13th 14th of April, he managed to contact family. he managed to get his radio repaired. Finally, on the 22nd of April, he sailed into Fulmouth. Her Majesty's Customers and Exercise had to come aboard, of course. Asked where he came from. He replied, Fulmouth. And to top it off, they then had the same psychiatrist do the same test on him afterwards, and he was declared distressingly normal again. I mean, this guy, around the world, on his own, couldn't have any assistance, couldn't even have mail, had all these problems, things break, everything. You have the modern races nowadays. And recently, though, in 2018, for the 50th anniversary, they recreated the Golden Globe race uh, with the same sort of rules, except for safety equipment. People could have like modern safety equipment. The amount of competitors lost in that, alive luckily, but lost was. From the same issues he had Was just innumerable, And I think the next one they're trying is 2022 But this is the greatest circumnavigation Because he did it on his own By himself With his own two hands And whatever he had to hand And yeah It, just, it baffles me that he managed to succeed doing this Because all the other competitors Either Dropped out for various reasons One sunk One killed himself one eventually killed himself after the sinking but years later he couldn't be able to go around the world again and the others went into ignominy uh montissier he actually gave up he he was disillusioned so he decided to go around the world twice instead he decided to go sail around cape of good hope again into the indian ocean and go around again so out of the race but yeah, Robin Knox Johnston, like, no one thought he'd do it. No one thought he was a favourite. The boat wasn't right for the race, or even just for the journey, and yet somehow did it.
2: Oh dear. I've just got to say that that list of food provisions must have been horrific constipation going on on that fucking boat. <laughs> Literally must have had a bleeding backside for most of that voyage. Uh, Holmes, any questions?
5: Well, I think, you know, growing up in the Midlands and stuff in the 70s, I said already, I don't know why he took the one kind of mixed bed with him for a start, to be honest.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I think there were more cans, but it wasn't specified how many.
5: Um, I mean, it's an astonishing achievement. I think, James, what you didn't mention, it was, you know, there was a competition like this before, but you were allowed to make one stop.
7: Um I think so. The, I think you're on about Chichester and Taberley. There was the race across the Atlantic, and Chichester, the British needed a winner, basically. And Chichester managed to go round the world one stop in Australia. Yeah. Um, but nobody thought it could be done non-stop. There was a few people planning it, and the Sunday Times got a hold of the story, and they decided, I think it was the Sunday Times, and they decided to set a race with a prize, so it became a race. Um, but, yeah, it is now known as, like, a class. If you do the round the world with one stop, it is called the Chichester class.
5: So, yeah. And, and I, know, I know we said we weren't going to mention Donald Crowhurst, but he was sort of my entry into this, In that, not that I've entered it, obviously, but he's fascinating yeah. in that um, he entered late. He entered in this race late because... Um, and he only entered because his business was just about to go under and he wanted the money and he thought he could win it.
7: Yes. he was an- And he... He chose the wrong boat for the journey as well. He chose the sister ship of, I think it's Bill Tetley's Victorious. Um, and full credit to Bill Tetley, he should have finished the race. And if it wasn't for Donald Crowhurst's crazy lies and the crazy reporting, he would have finished the race. But he pushed himself too hard, pushed the boat too hard, and she sank.
5: Well, he, yeah, he was Donald Crowhurst, he was like, yeah. He was he was like an amateur sailor. Donald Crowhurst was, and he set out and he got down to um, to about
6: Brazil. South America. Yeah,
5: he, he did. Was quite an achievement in itself. And his idea was that he would actually he would hang around there until the leaders came past, and then he would just join in the sort of come in behind them. But basically, Robin Knox Johnson got yeah. back, and then the bloke who was going to become second, he left the race. So it suddenly left. Yes, Crowverse. Bernard
7: Montessier, Yes.
5: So Crowhurst was suddenly. Um, thinking well if I come in second people are going to look at my logs really detail. He'd, be, he'd been sailing around and yeah, making fake diary entries of where his positions were and then he got to the point where he knew he was going to be found out if he came in second if he came in less than that he thought he could come in nobody will really give a shit because it's not that important and ultimately he went mad um, he ended up thinking he was yeah. God, they reckon that he ended up I've read himself. some
7: of his um, what he wrote in the log because it was in the book, Voyage for Mad Men. It's just insane.
5: It's, I um, mean, he shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have gone anyway, but it's like, you know, yeah. a bit of me thinks we could all end up in a situation like not sailing necessarily around the world. But if, you know, we, if we lose our jobs, our business fail, we might make an extreme decision. This is a very, very um, extreme, extreme example of this. And Robin Knox Johnson actually gave Donald Crowder's widow 5,000, Pat, you gave the winnings. yeah. I think also
7: we need to mention Che Blythe because he didn't know how to sail on the day he left. He managed to sail, he managed to get round the Cape of Good Hope and then he suffered um, a similar problem to Robin Knox Johnston. His self-steering broke a few times and he had a bad storm and he thought it was the wrong boat as well for the journey and he'd managed to get round the Cape of Good Hope and he thought... I can't risk the Pacific like this. I've done this. I will do round the world eventually. And he retired from the race. And he's now one of Britain's most premier yachtsmen, Che Blythe. Um, So he didn't know how to sail on the day and still managed to do all round Africa, which is also impressive in itself.
5: And then if anyone, just to bring it back to Donald again, because that's my obsession, but if we were talking about (laughs) films... um... A couple of years ago, there were two films that were released. Uh, one's got Colin Firth in it, called The Mercy, and then there's a slightly mm. more grittier film for one that's called Crowhurst, which which are available for viewing. Pete, they may not Pete, they may not be good for your Saturday night date night ones, given the subject matter, but they're well worth a watch. Yep.
2: Okay, thanks very much for that, James. Right, two to go. Let's go to Beth, our winner last week. Who have you gone for this week, Beth?
13: Right, I've gone for what well, I think. Obviously the best one, and I'm going to try and aim for two weeks in a row. So let's see if I can. That um, would be the
2: first time anyone's done it.
13: Oh, do you know what? I, I feel I might be in with a chance. Um, I've gone for Captain James Cook on board the Endeavour. Um, probably the most iconic journey, I think, um, for me personally, why I did ch- choose it. So I'll just start off very briefly about James Cook, uh, born in... On the 7th of November, 1728, um, second of eight children, again, like some of the others that have been mentioned today, joined the Merchant Navy first as a teenager and then joined the Royal Navy in 1755. Um, Saw service in the Seven Years' War and it was noted throughout his time in the Navy that he was very competent at surveying, cartography, navigation. Um, And this transpired throughout the Seven Years War but also on an expedition in the 1960s to Newfoundland where with assistance from local uh, residents he charted the the coastline of Newfoundland um he also managed to capture the eclipse uh which happened on the 5th of August 1766 and based off that getting the times of the eclipses, he managed to work out the latitude, which then could be transferred to London to see with the Royal Society when the eclipse had happened in London. So they could start to, you know, starting to get all the things about latitude, longitude, time differences. That all started to come in with James Cook's work. And he came to the attention of the Admiralty and the Royal Society as someone like a rising star, someone to be really keeping their eye on in the future. Um, He said that after his work in Newfoundland, because the maps he created were still well into the 1900s because they were so accurate. He did say after that work and any adventures going forward, he said um, that he intended to go not only further than any man has been before me, but as far as I think it is possible for a man to go. So even then he had really expectations of himself that he was going to go far and do great things. Um in the 70s in 1678, George III, with the assistance of the Royal Society, commissioned a voyage. Now there was two um, like two missions for this voyage. The first one being that they wanted the um the transit of Venus to be tracked again for mapping purposes and to see when um the sun had like the distance between the earth and the sun, because obviously Venus was going to be passing in front. Um but there was also going to be a secret mission that was set by the Admiralty on behalf of the King. And uh, James Cook was told they were going to do this transit of Venus, but not to open um, a sealed set of orders until they got to Tahiti. So off he went on the Endeavour. This is the famous mission, but at the time he didn't look quite aware of what was going to happen. Um, they would go. He set off from... Uh, where was it? Forgot Portsmouth, with uh, ninety-four people and eighteen months' worth of provisions on the twenty-sixth of August, seventeen sixty-eight.
2: Did he have a tin of mixed veg, though?
13: Well, who knows? <laughs> he did have plenty of fresh fruit, though, because he was a big advocate for um, fresh fruit. To print that's right, produce. yeah. Um, so on his voyage, they got all the way to Australia without having any cases of scurvy, which I think pretty impressive for the 1760s um what was going he wasn't initially supposed to be in charge either the royal society wanted to send one of their scientists but the navy said well no it's our ship we will decide who's going so they sent james cook um so they got they went round down across the atlantic around the around cape horn um and arrived at tahiti having stopped at brazil on the way They arrived at Tahiti on the 13th of April, 1769. So eight months later, eight months after they'd left uh, Portsmouth, they arrived in Tahiti. Spent about six weeks doing some observations um, for the transit of Venus. And when he opened up the sealed orders, as he'd been told to do so when the work had been done, um, it was a mission from the Royal Society and, and Royalty and the Navy as well, to go and find the terra australis incognita which was which translates as the southern um on, the unknown southern land to you know find it and claim it for britain and for the king as well um at this point western australia had been discovered by a dutchman called abel tasman in 1640s um and he'd also discovered new zealand as well um but in, in both of those cases, there hadn't been any settlements um, put in place because they felt there were two inhospitable environments. Um, so when they left in the beginning of June, they left Tahiti, took with them two men from Tahiti who acted as navigators. Um, and one of them was a priest as well. So they joined the mission and arrived at New Zealand, near to the modern-day town of Gisborne, um, on the where's it gone? 6th of October, 1769. So another four months uh, from arriving in Tahiti, leaving Tahiti, another four months to get to New Zealand. Um, it wasn't actually, you know, particularly important person who saw New Zealand first. Um, it was actually a young 12-year-old. Um, he was a surgeon's boy who's called Nicholas Cook, Nicholas Young. Um, and James Cook rewarded him for being the first one to see the mountains of New Zealand by um, calling one of the bays in the area around Gisborne young young Nick's head Um, but he was the first person to see it, eventually um, moored up near to Gisborne um, and started to explore the area actually had quite good uh, connections with the Maori people managed to, you know, they presented gifts and was oh there were okay um conversation well not conversations you know uh well they, they seemed to to get on pretty well all things considered you know this white the white man on these big ships who on earth are they um but they seem to seem to do okay um but then spent the next few months circumnavigating new zealand because james cook thought at first that it might be connected to this um southern land that they were looking for this unknown land that no one was really sure where it was Um, so they circumnavigated around new zealand three months around the north island two months around south island got to know parts of the area very well particularly the queen charlotte sound and um, he tried cook tried three times to plant the british flag in new zealand tried twice on the north island and neither of the tribes the maori tribes we're having it they said no um got to the south island and they said the one of the tribal leaders said okay you can you can place your flag if you really want to probably thinking that nothing more was going to come of it um, and we all know what happened there um so created this map and if you look at the map that cook had created with his with uh, his cartographers it is incredibly precise to what New Zealand is now. There's only minor, minor discrepancies, like one of them, it's a peninsula rather than what he thought was an island. Um, But it's it's very, very exact. Um, They left New Zealand, went out west. He wanted to keep going. He he had been encouraged to head back the way they came, um, but he wanted to continue on, kept going. And another four months later, arrived on the Eastern coast of Australia near to and what became known as Botany Bay um, believed to be the first group of Europeans who discovered landed on eastern Australia. Um, Botany Bay again had contact with the Aborigines didn't go as well as with Maoris um, in New Zealand but still they had contact with them but refused the gifts that had been given to them um, and kept moving on up the coast to see how far it goes and australia is a much bigger country than new zealand so they kept stopping at various places which is where the big cities of the east coast of australia have now formed you know sydney brisbane um, Kent. all the coast all the coastal cities um, initially formed from places that he um he discovered i suppose um, by that point, we're well into 1770, um, so actually more than two years since they left um, Portsmouth. Um, they get to the tip of Australia, turn left, and start to know where, where they are, um, because April Tasman had started to chart some of the areas, and they knew they were close to um, the Dutch East Indies, um, which is now you know, the, um, Indonesia, um, and they stopped off at Jakarta, and then thought, "We've had enough. We'll go back home now." Then go back around um, South Africa um, and arrive back in England on the twelfth of July, seventeen seventy-one. One month shy of three years. Um, they've tried to they were all around the, almost all the way around the southern hemisphere, and for me, it has to be the greatest journey because of because of that. Discovery all the way through the southern hemisphere three years away from england and came back with a a better understanding of what was on the other side of the world for us to go and conquer and occupy
2: um yeah which probably means his statues are getting taken down as well but it's a really good argument um there were a few people that wanted to do that one today pete any questions
9: um what i mean it's an amazing feat of Endurance. Uh, what, what was the um, legacy of it in terms of our kind of greater understanding of the world?
13: Um, I think we'll just think about it from a, a geographical perspective. Obviously, you know, there was it's known to be something in, in the area and Abel Tasman had, had already charted Western Australia, but found it too inhospitable to do anything to it. And I mean, the whole point of the expedition, I don't know if I said it, but I'll I'll just say it again anyway. It was a secret mission because the British Navy, the Admiralty, um, the Royal Society as well and Parliament, they didn't want other empires, other countries to know that they'd been found, particularly the French. They didn't want the French to know that there was going to be a mission to this southern hemisphere to try and find this great land that could be occupied and turned into you know really a, a trading partner or, or in whatever they wanted to do with it um you know we've got uh, sydney botany bay and you know the first penal colony being set up but only less than 20 years later um, near sydney so that occupation starts fairly quickly after he comes back and obviously that's only his first voyage he does mm. second and the third voyage as well um but I think it, it brings us, a you know, we're trying to be a bit philosophical about this now, which may not work. Um, you know, it's broadened the understanding of what's in the world. You know, it was just this great expanse of unknown. Um, I mean, of course, as British Empire, we did we did what we did best. And we went and took over these places and told these people how to be civilised. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can't, escape the fact that you know and obviously there were things that went on in these countries that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been discovered in the way that they had um and by by James Cook and by the British uh but then you then also can't say well there would be millions of people who live in Australia in New Zealand who kind of Oh, their way of not oh, their way of life, but that's like, oh, I don't know how to word it. But oh, their way. Of no, life. To, definitely don't know how to word
2: it this week without work. someone threatening <laughs> to kill you is what she's saying. Holmes, <laughs> any questions? We know what you're getting at. We we know from his perspective in his world what yeah. he achieved, um, whether or not that means a load of woke people want to go and beat up a metal version of him all now with or the not. context, guys, all with the context. Yes. Mm. Holmes any questions
5: well I think everything that uh, uh, Bess just said obviously just says uh, pizza restaurant in Eape to me um, that's, quite, <laughs> that's, that's quite niche but I'm going with it um,
13: that's, that's the best restaurant in Eve. I'm going to say that right now
5: I, I would disagree but we could probably take that offline um,
13: and
4: then, <laughs> <laughs> Some
2: bold the, um, statements
5: flying around now
2: will there be yeah, any but, restaurants left in Ypres by the time this is over
5: did they um, the sealed orders that you mentioned? Did they say um, find a country that will get disproportionately excited when they beat uh, one or two sports in about three hundred years' time?
1: <laughs>
13: <laughs> All I could find about the sealed orders was he was told to go to Tahiti because they knew about Tahiti and then open them when he got there. Um, I think it was it wasn't a complete secret. Like people knew that there was some, there was something happening. You know, they took a large amount of provisions as at eighteen months worth um they you know there were there were whisperings in Britain and across Europe as well that it would laugh
2: my head off if you open the seal orders and they just said I'm shagging your wife
13: <laughs> Well
5: also I mean I guess what what I don't know and again this is going back to my own ignorance and we we tend to know about Captain Cook and then we tend to know about convicts arriving. But I'm guessing there was something in between.
13: Um, I think he, I think he got back to Australia in the second voyage, but I think that there wasn't much. There wasn't, any, there wasn't any other major journeys between. I think it was 17, 1788. I think it was the first penal colony, and he had discovered Australia in 1770 for 18 years. So it's nice. how long it took them to get there? Maybe, maybe not.
2: Clive might be trying to sabotage someone else's argument, but he has pointed out that if he hadn't bothered, just think of the sporting embarrassment we could have been saved from Mark (laughs) Bosnich for a start, (laughs) (laughs) which I think Holmes can empathise with. Pete, you've done your questions, haven't you? Yeah, cool. Okay, last one for tonight. I'm guessing he's bringing the island.
11: Hell yeah, I am.
2: Let's do it. (laughs) What? Utter fucking batshit crazy nut job have you found in Irish history today?
11: Oh, he's just the greatest explorer in world history. Um, did Tom he find Green. a brewery? He did no such thing. He bailed out <laughs> a lot of English explorers in the Antarctic. Do it. Go on, uh, then. So Tom Crean, um probably one of Ireland's most important and greatest explorers alongside Ernest Shackleton, who was also <laughs> mentioned. Um earlier. I mean where to really begin? He had this fantastic life. Um, I was told to keep this to five minutes, so I've omitted most of it, but feel free <laughs> to check the Wikipedia page. Um, but the specific journey that I want to focus on um, is the Imperial Transarctic Expedition, which was sort of his last one. But prior to that, he had sailed um, with the uh, Scott uh, Expedition. Obviously, Scott got himself killed. Good job. Um, and, well, you know, Crean didn't. So Crean is part of this uh, effort by um, Shackleton on board the Endurance. Um, They set sail from Plymouth, sailing first to Buenos Aires, then they head to South Georgia, (laughs) there to the South Sandwich Islands, and the expedition heads towards the Antarctic. Now, the purpose of the expedition, it's the last major expedition towards the Antarctic. Uh, The purpose of it didn't really jump out at me from the various things I was reading, because that's not the bit anyone cares about. Because things go wrong very quickly uh, which is the Endurance gets stuck in pack ice almost immediately upon their arriving and they spend ten months trapped in pack ice. Uh, They have to disembark the ship at several points. Um, The ship sort of becomes basically this apartment block for the scientists um, who are on board so they're able to conduct some of their um, experiments but After 10 months in ice, on the 27th of October, the ship is completely abandoned and the expedition disembarks into minus 26 degree temperatures. They watch the endurance basically shatter itself in the ice. Um, Shackleton and Crean make the decision that they should try and cross the ice, um, but progress was almost impossible. So instead they camped out until the ice started to break up and then maybe they could make a break for it. They managed to survive the winter uh, in the Antarctic, which is in itself incredible. And then they make the decision to board the Endurance's lifeboats, which they had managed and to... Accessibility
5: options. I agree. And <laughs> <not> <laughs> <laughs>
11: so they board these lifeboats um, without Google text to guide them. And they set sail, hopefully towards South Georgia, through the sea, which had shattered their initial boat. So that they take, undertake this incredibly dangerous journey. It's about... I'm not entirely sure of the first distance, but they don't make it. They have to settle for a small wind-blasted rock called Elephant Island, which is about 800 miles from South Georgia. And this is where Crean really steps in. He and Shackleton decide to modify the lifeboat that is in the best condition, which is the James Caird, and to sail from Elephant Island to South Georgia using only a map, some improvised tools, and very little else in brutal seagoing conditions throughout the voyage crean himself keeps spirits very high he's known for singing tunelessly as he grips the tiller um no one knows what he's singing he just knows that he's keeping people cheerful um and the voyage is terrible as i said shackleton describes it as the worst waves he had ever seen but somehow by virtue of uh shackleton and their navigator worsley they do make it to um South Georgia, having left most of the crew behind on Elephant Island, so they're now on the clock as well. But they have landed on the wrong side of South Georgia, the South Georgian Islands. So Crean, Shackleton, and Worsley then decide that they're going to walk through the island to get to the whaling station on the far side, where they can raise the alarm and then rescue the rest of their crew, which are trapped back on Elephant Island. So they walk through 40 kilometers of mountain range and glacier, um, and they do manage to make it somehow. Uh, after several aborted attempts. The alarm is raised and the party on Elephant Island are rescued. Um, it's a superhuman effort in conditions we can struggle to fathom. Almost no casualties. Um, and they survived And the story. He has a statue now in County Kerry. He's holding a dog, so he's basically bulletproof. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a fantastic character. and Like a true patriot, he died in poverty as opposed to you know on the job
2: um i really like that one holmes any questions
5: so I, i'm very fond of this but i have to declare a, a, a slight um family interest in that my cousin's wife's grandfather was the geologist on the Shackleton shepherds trip uh, oh, yeah. a, bloke called, a bloke called sir james man wordy who went on to um um, set up the logistics for Hillary's trip as uh, Everest as well. I mean, she is very, very posh, and I am not, and so that's the only way. Can...
2: You were taking the piss last night when you said your great aunt was one of the seals on the island.
5: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be more believable. Um, um, but I think it, it's an incredibly, it, it's an uh, an incredible feat. Um, I mean, just with my first war hound, a lot of them when they got back immediately went up and signed up and started fighting in the war as well. I mean.
2: When they Man- got back and went, what the fuck?
5: Yeah. I mean, Sir James Man-Wordy, um he ended up he ended up enlisting pretty much straight away. He was an officer, I think, in the Royal Garrison Artillery. And he got wounded when his horse um, reared up and fell on him and smashed his hip. So he wasn't there for very long. And it's not a very heroic death. But I think the, um, what they endured, A, just by being stuck in the ice in the first place for however long it was. And then that trip um, on the small boat to Elephant Island it must have been astonishing. I know Clyde made a similar story um, earlier, but I have a feeling this boat was slightly smaller. They had less provisions, and they didn't have a fourth tent or a sixth dent or a sextant or whatever it was that we mentioned <laughs> earlier on. And it, um, and it wasn't sunny. Like, <laughs> but, but, yeah, it was absolutely freezing. And they, for morale, they didn't even didn't even have the one kind of mixed veg. I'd imagine. And even yeah. that isn't. <laughs> and then when you get to the fact that when actually they leave. Um, elephant island and the small in the small boat and get to south georgia by that time they're on their you know they're on their arses basically and they have to scale these great heights to get to the whaling station it's it is a phenomenally um inspiring story and done it in absolute desperate states and i think there's probably a bit of luck involved in this as there was with the story that clive told earlier um but you know all their lives depended on it and all the gang who they left behind on an island depended on it. And to come out of that uh, with that weather that Andy highlighted as well, I think is um, astonishing.
2: Absolutely. Pete, any questions?
9: Uh, No, just an observation that I'm never getting on a fucking boat ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: I love it. Do you want me to just finally, do you want me to put you back on dry land for mine, which is proper half-assed effort um, and very brief? um, So brief at the moment that I can't even find my notes. Where did they go? Right. My journey is a mere 54 miles. um, And that is the distance on the highway between Selma, Alabama, and the state capital of Montgomery. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the film But basically a very brief version of this story Is that black people were shat on In the American South Well, all across America And were disenfranchised throughout the 20th century uh, The Dallas County Voters League That's the county that Selma sits in Launched a voter registration campaign in Selma in 1963 um, And they had people join them From the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee It wasn't really going very well um, There was resistance that they just could not overcome um, to people registering to vote. Even when the Civil Rights Act in 1964 ended legal segregation, realistically, a black person could still not register to vote in Selma. Um, So they asked the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the activists of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to join them. Uh, They went down there with a lot of high profile people in January 1965 and they started local and regional protests. 3,000 people arrested by the end of February. um, Was not going well. So February twenty sixth, 1965, activist and deacon Jimmy Lee Jackson died after being shot several days earlier by trooper James Bonner Fowler during a peaceful march nearby in Marion, Alabama, uh, to defuse and refocus the community's outfra- outrage. The SCLC director of direct action, um, who was directing the voting rights movement in Selma, called for a march of dramatic length along this 54-mile stretch of highway. Um, And he'd been working on this uh, Alabama project for voting rights since late 1963. First march took place on March the 7th, 1965. Didn't really get very far. Uh, State troopers and county possemen attacked the unarmed marchers with billy clubs and tear gas after they passed the county line. And the event became known as Bloody Sunday. Second march takes place on March the 9th. Troopers, police and marchers confronted each other at the county end of the bridge. But when the troopers stepped aside to let them pass, King led the marchers back to the church. He was obeying a federal injunction while seeking protection from federal court for the march. Uh, that night, a white group beat and murdered civil rights activist James Reeb, uh, a minister from Boston, who, was, who had come down to join the march. The violence of Bloody Sunday and Reeves' murder resulted in national outcry and some acts of civil disobedience targeting both Alabama and federal governments. Protesters demanded protection for the Selma marches and the new federal federal voting rights law to enable African-Americans to register and vote without harassment. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, whose administration had been working on a voting rights law, held a historic nationally televised joint session of Congress on March the 15th to ask for the bill's introduction and passage. Um, with the governor refusing to protect the marchers, Johnson committed to do it. Third march started on twi- 21st of March, 1965, protected by 1,900 members of the Alabama National Guard under federal command, FBI agents, federal marshals. The marchers adver- averaged 10, 10 miles, 16 kilometers a day along US Route 80. Um, and arrived in Montgomery on March the 24th and at the Alabama State Capitol the following day. With thousands having joined the campaign, 25,000 people entered the capital city that night in support of voting rights. Uh, The upshot of this is that this walk... um, By highlighting racial injustice, they contributed to a passage that year of the Voting Rights Act, which was a landmark federal achievement in the civil rights movement. So that's my journey, is Martin Luther King, Alice Chums in Selma in 1965. Um, Let's go round the room while the judges make up their mind, unless they want to ask me any questions, which I probably can't answer because all of that was based on watching the film. (laughs) (laughs) On a plane on the way to Bangkok.
9: Well, that makes you a historian, doesn't it? That makes you an expert on the whole thing.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go write a book about Martin Luther King now. Yeah. It's more research than anyone on Twitter's done the last few days. I consider myself chief marshal of statues now in Selma.
1: Well, I, I was suppose the, 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 the only
5: issue with that is it made, you know, it, it felt like progress was being made. And, and indeed, progress was made then at the time. And, and it sort of felt like progress continue to be made up to a certain point but are we going backwards a little bit now i don't know Um,
2: oh it's just retarded isn't it i just think that when you think now that that was 50 years ago yeah you still have scenes like what has kicked all of this off in minnesota just beggars belief we're putting together an african-american history week actually and we recorded one yesterday on the tulsa riots in 1921 which is basically just a fucking massacre in, and it wasn't even, like it was a posh district as well. It was a well-to-do district of African-Americans in Tulsa. And you're just like, man, how have you not got past this in the last hundred years? And, but that's, that's basically uh, what that's ex- exploring is that week of shows. Yeah, Clive.
6: And, and Trump's going back to Tulsa to do a astonishing, rally. astonishing, isn't it?
2: Ugh, just don't even get me started.
9: I, 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 I hadn't heard of the Tulsa thing until I watched Watchmen last year and yep. because that sets an alternate universe you, you just assume that this is part of the fabrication Dude. and then you find out that it's fucking real
2: yeah the chat that, that we've interviewed like, that opening to Watchmen is based on his book about Tulsa
9: yeah and, so. and every every aspect of it was real that, that was part of the, the real stuff not the superhero stuff and it's, it's just astonishing that a it happened in the first place and b we didn't know about it or you know no.
2: kind of... well he with the way he explains it we spoke to tim madigan yeah his book the the opening scenes in the Watchmen were based extensively on his book about the tulsa race massacre and uh was saying that there's no statute of limitations on murder therefore the people that had committed the atrocities kept the mouth shut because they could always come and get them um and because of that reason it meant that the people that had suffered them were constantly in fear and it wasn't until he started talking to people decades later um where they they said to him people will talk to you about it but only if they know you and they trust you because they don't they're not immune from reprisals as far as they're concerned it's just they didn't hold a commission into it until 2001 jesus yeah so uh That's why we're going to do a whole week of African-American history. But yeah, so I picked the Selma walk. Uh, Right, let's go around the room while you guys make up your minds uh, and find out. So John's had to drop out because he's gone for a a doctor's thing and Kate's phone's died. But let's ask Clive. Clive, if you can't have your journey, which was spectacular, old chum.
6: Oh, thank you. Well, I, I must say I was thinking of doing Shackleton until you persuaded me not to, but... The thing that's actually really won me over is the Huskies.
2: Oh, really? <laughs> We're so British, aren't we? <laughs> your, your yeah, right. Lockie, have you been fooled by the Huskies?
4: No, I haven't, because I, I know that you get covered in dog shit when you uh, go out on Husky rides. <laughs> <laughs> um... No,
8: only snow. You only get covered in snow. <laughs>
6: really? <laughs> that's bad They're very specific and
8: very particular about where they shit. <laughs>
4: I, can, I think I can hear one now.
8: Yeah. <laughs> in the background. Trust me, they're very particular about where they sit.
4: Um, the, the one I was going to go for was Around the World in 80 Days, actually. That sounded epic. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my winner. If I can't have a massively boozy, fighty, round the world <coughs> smash a thon, yeah. Um, yeah. Because right basically,
2: Drake sounds like a rugby tour, doesn't it? That's why you're attached to that <laughs> yeah. one. Uh, it's
4: quite a lot, actually. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm torn between your rugby tour of shithousery and um, the stinky woman and the. Uh, specifically, her. I know it's a race, but not the second one. Fuck her. She sounds like she had a stick up her ass. I like the stinky one that didn't even take a change of pants with her. I think I'm going to go for her. Uh, Beth. Yeah, I think I'm with you on this one, Alex. It's got to be the stinky lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love, we love <laughs> Nellie Bly oh, and her one. lack of personal hygiene. We yeah. can empathise in lockdown because we've all just given up caring. Uh, Andy Dorman, who's raising his eyebrows, as in I still clean myself. <laughs>
11: <laughs> I put on a shirt for this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it's got to be either, I mean, the Selma walk is obviously iconic, but I think that for, for the sake of the comedy, it's got to be the, the, the women kit told it so well as well it's perfect yeah
2: it was brilliant kit debutant who would you go for if you can't have your mad stinky woman i'll, I'll go for
10: francis drake in his rugby tour yeah you
2: know, <laughs> it's the boys pretty have it's party. <laughs> kate we know you're absolutely 100 percent in love with your husky story but
8: yeah if i can't have my fluffy dogs saving the lives of thousands of children then i would have to choose um john purely for sacajawea not the other two <laughs>
2: yeah, she was pretty epic, actually. Did
8: she? She died of disease,
2: didn't she? I'm not sure. I don't I'm know. granted my entire fucking knowledge of her is based on Night at the Museum. No, yeah, there's
12: mine. <laughs> <laughs> She's or am good. I thinking of Pocahontas?
2: I don't know. Yeah, I'm terrible. That's really bad. We need to have... I'm desperately trying to get some Native American history on the podcast so I can educate my ignorant self. But I'm basing this on a cartoon and night not see I also have to her because I love the old west. So, you
8: know, she kind of yeah. started that whole thing. So yeah, she's my job. And actually, do you know what? I did a three week road trip
2: through nine of those states last summer and it was fucking hard in a Cadillac Escalade. I can't imagine doing it on foot. Um, and in a canoe it was stressful enough and I nearly murdered my best friend as it was so um, yeah by the time we got to Colorado he's lucky to survive I nearly booted him off the Glen Canyon Dam right at the beginning in Arizona Uh, and if he's listening to this you fucking know why but anyway (laughs) yeah Yeah, good show I
10: I almost went for it for a Native American story I almost went for what's called the Nay-Pierce War Mm -hmm. which is basically these uh, Indians were forced to go on a reservation they just went you know fuck that and they made a 1,500-mile dash for the Canadian border, chased by, like, three times as many U.S. troops and got about 40 miles from Canada. Um, and so I almost went for that one.
2: Oh, that probably would have won. That sounds epic. <laughs> um, James?
7: Uh, I'm actually going to go with K.S.'s The Huskies. And it's such an epic journey and story. It's, and I'm a big dog fan. I love my dog to bits. Stinky stinky woman was close, but it's just that <laughs> that they managed to do it in record breaking time to save these people and Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm, <laughs> Gotta be huskies. I'm not quite so moved, but the huskies are doing well. Alina I'm also gonna
12: go with John and Sakawe, but Andrew comes in a close second. Cool. A- as in Dorman, as in that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you like the rugby saw? What's wrong with you? You'd <laughs> love that. You'd love that, surrounded by fucking weird ass pirates getting drunk. You'd have absolutely had a whale of a time on that Drake world tour. I feel we need, yeah. I feel we need to get hoodies made. You know when they do the rugby um, tour hoodies? I feel whoever wins this, we need to do history hat ones, as if we all went on the journey. Depending (laughs) on uh, who it was, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna do that. Let's well, let's see who they pick first. Holmes Brown. Go
5: on. Pete, do you want to go first? We're, we're in agreement anyway. So. Okay.
9: We're in agreement. How are going to do this? Um, I, I've, so my, my first time as a Jeff I found it really uh, fascinating because uh, A, being the only non-professional historian and learning a lot of stuff. Uh, but B, it's like we need to... We, it's, no, it's, Pete, it's,
2: everyone's a, hist- a professional historian now.
6: Oh yes, of course, I if forgot, you can use yes. Wikipedia, I, you're yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, no, No one's paying me for anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you need a
6: better writer. So, uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed them all. I, I think it's fascinating. If you're trying to,
9: obviously, it's a, a shitty stick to trying to choose which, is, which you want to win, but you've got to consider kind of motive, uh, distance, uh, and the physical challenge that, that, that people face. And uh, and there's some great sort of long journeys which it's like yeah but you're doing it for a laugh and, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think we sh- shall I do our honourable mentions, Andrew, and then you do our, our winner.
5: Yeah, go on.
9: Yeah, so I, I think I think in terms of carrying the spirit of the day, the Blyes have it. So we've, we've got we've, we've got the bounty, and then we've got the Shitty Woman. Uh, <laughs> she had the same name. Uh both both fantastic for for, for different reasons. Um and uh, I, I do wanna with texting, I think the 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 eight days one, I mean, why is that not a bank holiday Monday movie uh that's been around for thirty years? I I will make it, I will change career and make that movie if nobody else does. Um and um and Lewis and Clark was just so just so impressive as well. So, uh, Andrew, what's our,
5: what's our winner? Well, our, our winner is, is Tom, is, uh Andrew's mentioned, Tom Crean. I think the, the whole Shackleton thing um, is exceptional. It's almost a freak in the way that they pulled it off. There were a number of, you know, there's a the fact that, as I said, you know, uh, while you were, you were going through it in our questions, that they were stuck on the ice for so long, and then they went in the little boat across to um, Elephant Island, and then left people behind and then a smaller group left Elephant Island and went to South Georgia and then made it to the whaling station and everybody came back I think is absolutely astonishing. You know, they were completely up against it more so than anyone else I think in the examples we've given tonight and so just on that basis I think it has to have it.
2: Brilliant. Well done, Dorman. Yeah. You're totally <laughs> fucking baffled that Irish <laughs> history has won the day. <laughs> I, I have all to all say are. though, yeah, I have to say, Kit, what an introduction though. You can definitely come back again because that was brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much. And you're gonna have to come back at some point and tell us the story of those Indians fucking legging it for the border because that sounds brilliant as well. <laughs> no worries. What happened forty miles from the border? Put us out of our misery. Is it sad?
10: It was it was a three-day standoff. The the U.S. Army basically surrounded them with three times as many. Uh, only I think about a third of the of uh, the were actually soldiers. The rest were women mm. and children. And the U.S. just outnumbered them and outgunned them.
2: Sounds rather like the whole uh, wounded knee thing. Cause it went no, not wounded knee. I keep getting it this was thing.
10: yeah, it was the massacre of wounded knee.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I went there. It's literally like a fucking depression in the ground. The fact that you rail people into there, they had no chance of surviving. That was quite sad. Oh, well, that probably wouldn't have won because it's quite sad at the end. But, uh, <laughs> well nice. done, everyone. That was really good. Really good debate. Um, oh, God, we've got on tonight. Uh, never mind. Holmes, what is it next week? Your colleague suggested it, hasn't he? Uh,
5: well, he mentioned uh, he thought it would be a good idea if we did History's Greatest Death.
2: Yeah, which might be cool because that could be epically. <laughs> yeah oh look at kick it's like what oh yeah um so we've done we've done some silly assassinations before and stuff but i'm sure there's some fucking epically ridiculous death scenes out there yeah (laughs) does it count Stephen gerald slipping over (laughs) Um, (laughs) to (laughs) to be fair now all i've got in my head is um
7: stupid deaths from horrible histories that theme tune
2: Yeah, we'll have a laugh with it. It'll be good. And then the week after that, um, we're going to have this Greatest Britain debate where we'll debate the finalists as voted for um, by our listeners. So make sure you get onto the History Hack Twitter because, and the Facebook, we have an online poll now that you can vote for different categories of your favourite Britons. Um, And when we started it, two days in, Churchill was running away with it, but God knows what the wokes are going to do to it now. So it could be a highly amusing list of finalists by the time uh, the internet has has finished fucking with history Uh, but we'll see what happens so that should be a laugh Uh, Join us over the weekend Uh, Tomorrow we have the history of sex We've got a panel together, Um, we couldn't not invite Eleanor Yanagar because she's everyone's favourite smutty historian Uh, We've got Kate Lister as well, author of Curious History of Sex and we've got Amanda Sharland and Terence Christian, archaeologists Uh, and we literally have investigated everything from dildos um, and we didn't touch STDs because they're no fun Uh, and kink and contraception up to the hilarity of medieval male in in impotence. And what happened if you couldn't get it up for your wife and then couldn't get it up in front of an audience of 50 matronly women who were testing your abilities, to get it up. Um, It basically resulted in more. And on Sunday we have Steve Broussard with us. He is a paleontologist and he's done the rise of the dinosaurs. So yeah, we bring you this weekend sex